Book One, Chapter One of This Side of Paradise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Book One the romantic egotist well this side of paradise there's little comfort in the wise rupert brooke experience is the name so many people give to their mistakes oscar wilde chapter 1 amory son of beatrice amory blaine inherited from his mother every trait except the strange, inexpressible few that made him worth while. His father, an ineffectual, inarticulate man with a taste for Byron and a habit of drowsing over the Encyclopaedia Britannica, grew wealthy at thirty through the death of two elder brothers, successful Chicago brokers, and, in the first flush of feeling that the world was his, went to Bar Harbor and met Beatrice O'Hara. In consequence, Stephen Blaine handed down to posterity his height of just under six feet, and his tendency to waver at crucial moments, these two abstractions appearing in his son Amory. For many years he hovered in the background of his family's life, an unassertive figure with a face half obliterated by lifeless, silky hair, continually occupied in taking care of his wife, continually harassed by the idea that he didn't, and couldn't, understand her. But Beatrice Blaine, there was a woman. Early pictures taken on her father's estate at Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, or in Rome at the Sacred Heart Convent, an educational extravagance that in her youth was only for the daughters of the exceptionally wealthy, showed the exquisite delicacy of her features, the consummate art and simplicity of her clothes. A brilliant education she had, her youth passed in Renaissance glory, she was versed in the latest gossip of the older Roman families, known by name as a fabulously wealthy American girl to Cardinal Vittori and Queen Margarita, and more subtle celebrities that one must have had some culture even to have heard of. She learned in England to prefer whiskey and soda to wine, and her small talk was broadened in two senses during a winter in Vienna. All in all, Beatrice O'Hara absorbed the sort of education that will be quite impossible ever again, a tutelage measured by the number of things and people one could be contemptuous of and charming about, a culture rich in all arts and traditions, barren of all ideas. In the last of those days when the great gardener clipped the inferior roses to produce one perfect bud. In her less important moments she returned to America, met Stephen Blaine, and married him, this almost entirely because she was a little bit weary, a little bit sad. Her only child was carried through a tiresome season, and brought into the world on a spring day in ninety-six. When Amory was five he was already a delightful companion for her. He was an auburn-haired boy, with great handsome eyes which he would grow up to in time a facile imaginative mind and a taste for fancy dress. From his fourth to his tenth year he did the country with his mother in her father's private car, from Coronado, 
where his mother became so bored that she had a nervous breakdown in a fashionable hotel, down to Mexico City, where she took a mild, almost epidemic consumption. This trouble pleased her, and later she made use of it as an intrinsic part of her atmosphere, especially after several astounding bracers. So, while more or less fortunate little rich boys were defying governesses on the beach at Newport, or being spanked or tutored or read to from Do and Dare, or Frank on the Mississippi, Amory was biting acquiescent bell-boys in the Waldorf, outgrowing a natural repugnance to chamber music and symphonies, and deriving a highly specialized education from his mother. Amory? Yes, Beatrice. Such a quaint name for his mother. She encouraged it. Dear, don't think of getting out of bed yet. I've always suspected that early rising in early life makes one nervous. Clotilde is having your breakfast brought up. All right. I'm feeling very old today, Amory, she would sigh, her face a rare cameo of pathos, her voice exquisitely modulated, her hands as facile as Bernard's. My nerves are on edge, on edge. We must leave this terrifying place to-morrow and go searching for sunshine. Amory's penetrating green eyes would look out through tangled hair at his mother. Even at this age he had no illusions about her. Amory? Oh, yes. I want you to take a red-hot bath, as hot as you can bear it, and just relax your nerves. You can read in the tub if you wish. She fed him sections of the Fête Galante before he was ten. At eleven he could talk glibly, if rather reminiscently, of Brahms and Mozart and Beethoven. One afternoon, when left alone in the hotel at Hot Springs, he sampled his mother's apricot cordial, and as the taste pleased him, he became quite tipsy. This was fun for a while, but he essayed a cigarette in his exaltation, and succumbed to a vulgar plebeian reaction. Though this incident horrified Beatrice, it also secretly amused her, and became part of what in a later generation would have been termed her line. This son of mine, he heard her tell a room full of awestruck, admiring women one day, is entirely sophisticated and quite charming, but delicate. We're all delicate here, you know. Her hand was radiantly outlined against her beautiful bosom. Then, seeking her voice to a whisper, she told them of the apricot cordial. They rejoiced, for she was a brave raconteuse, but many were the keys turned in sideboard locks that night, against the possible defection of little Bobby or Barbara. These domestic pilgrimages were invariably in state. Two maids, the private car, or Mr. Blaine when available, and very often a physician. When Emery had the whooping cough, four disgusted specialists glared at each other, hunched around his bed. When he took scarlet fever, the number of attendants, including physicians and nurses, totaled fourteen. However, blood being thicker than broth, he was pulled through. The Blaines were attached to no city. They were the Blaines of Lake Geneva. They had quite enough relatives to serve in place of friends 
and an enviable standing from Pasadena to Cape Cod. But Beatrice grew more and more prone to like only new acquaintances, as there were certain stories, such as the history of her constitution and its many amendments, memories of her years abroad, that it was necessary for her to repeat at regular intervals. Like Freudian dreams, they must be thrown off, else they would sweep in and lay siege to her nerves. But Beatrice was critical about American women, especially the floating population of ex-Westerners. "'They have accents, my dear,' she told Amory. "'Not Southern accents, or Boston accents, not an accent attached to any locality, just an accent.' She became dreamy. "'They pick up old, moth-eaten London accents that are down on their luck and have to be used by someone.' They talk as an English butler might, after several years in a Chicago Grand Opera Company. She became almost incoherent. Suppose, time in every Western woman's life, she feels her husband is prosperous enough for her to have accent. They tried to impress me, my dear. Though she thought of her body as a mass of frailties, she considered her soul quite as ill and therefore important in her life. She had once been a Catholic, but discovering that priests were infinitely more attentive when she was in process of losing or regaining faith in Mother Church, she maintained an enchantingly wavering attitude. Often she deplored the bourgeois quality of the American Catholic clergy, and was quite sure that had she lived in the shadow of the great continental cathedrals, her soul would still be a thin flame on the mighty altar of Rome. Still, next to doctors, priests were her favorite sport. "'Ah, Bishop Whiston,' she would declare, "'I do not want to talk of myself. I can imagine the stream of hysterical women fluttering at your doors, beseeching you to be simpatico.' Then, after an interlude filled by the clergyman, "'But my mood is—' oddly dissimilar. Only to bishops and above did she divulge her clerical romance. When she had first returned to her country there had been a pagan, Swinburnian young man in Asheville, for whose passionate kisses and unsentimental conversations she had taken a decided penchant. They had discussed the matter pro and con, with an intellectual romancing quite devoid of sappiness. Eventually she had decided to marry for background, and the young pagan from Asheville had gone through a spiritual crisis, joined the Catholic Church, and was now Monsignor Darcy. "'Indeed, Mrs. Blaine, he is still delightful company, quite the cardinal's right-hand man.' "'Amory will go to him one day, I know,' breathed the beautiful lady and Monsignor Dark will understand him as he understood me." Amory became thirteen, rather tall and slender, and more than ever on to his Celtic mother. He had tutored occasionally, the idea being that he was to keep up, at each place taking up the work where he left off. Yet, as no tutor ever found the place he left off, his mind was still in very good shape. What a few more years of this life would have made of him is problematical. However, four hours out from land, Italy bound, with Beatrice, his appendix burst, 
probably from too many meals in bed, and after a series of frantic telegrams to Europe and America, to the amazement of the passengers the great ship slowly wheeled around, and returned to New York to deposit Emery at the pier. You will admit that if it was not life it was magnificent. After the operation Beatrice had a nervous breakdown that bore a suspicious resemblance to delirium tremens, and Emery was left in Minneapolis, destined to spend the ensuing two years with his aunt and uncle. There the crude, vulgar air of Western civilization first catches him, in his underwear, so to speak. A KISS FOR Amory. His lip curled when he read it. "'I am going to have a bobbing party,' it said, "'on Thursday, December the 17th, at five o'clock, and I would like it very much if you could come. Yours truly, Myra St. Clair, R.S.V.P.' He had been two months in Minneapolis, and his chief struggle had been the concealing from the other guys at school how particularly superior he felt himself to be. Yet this conviction was built upon shifting sands. He had shown off one day in French class—he was in senior French class—to the utter confusion of Mr. Reardon, whose accent Amory damned contemptuously, and to the delight of the class. Mr. Reardon, who had spent several weeks in Paris ten years before, took his revenge on the verbs whenever he had his book open. But another time Amory showed off in history class, with quite disastrous results, for the boys there were his own age, and they shrilled innuendos at each other all the following week. "'Oh, I believe, don't you know, the American Revolution was largely an affair of the middle classes,' or, "'Washington came of very good blood, all quite good, I believe.' Amory ingeniously tried to retrieve himself by blundering on purpose. Two years before he had commenced a history of the United States which, though it only got as far as the colonial wars, had been pronounced by his mother completely enchanting. His chief disadvantage lay in athletics, but as soon as he discovered that it was the touchstone of power and popularity at school, he began to make furious, persistent efforts to excel in the winter sports and with his ankles aching and bending in spite of his efforts, he skated valiantly around the Laurelly rink every afternoon, wondering how soon he would be able to carry a hockey-stick without getting it inexplicably tangled in his skates. The invitation to Miss Myra St. Clair's bobbing-party spent the morning in his coat-pocket, where it had an intense physical affair with a dusty piece of peanut-brittle. During the afternoon he brought it to light with a sigh, and after some consideration, and a preliminary draft in the back of Collar and Daniel's first-year Latin, composed an answer. "'My dear Miss St. Clair, your truly charming invitation for the evening of next Thursday evening was truly delightful to receive this morning. I will be charmed and enchanted indeed to present my compliments on next Thursday evening. Faithfully, Amory Blaine.' On Thursday, therefore, he walked pensively along the slippery, shovel-scraped sidewalks, and came in sight of Myra's house, on the half-hour after five, a lateness which he fancied his mother would have favoured. He waited on the doorstep with his eyes nonchalantly half-closed, 
and planned his entrance with precision. He would cross the floor, not too hastily, to Mrs. St. Clair, and say with exactly the correct modulation, "'My dear Mrs. St. Clair, I'm frightfully sorry to be late, but my maid—' He paused there, and realized he would be quoting, "'But my uncle and I had to see a fella. Yes, I've met your enchanting daughter at dancing school.' Then he would shake hands, using that slight, half-foreign bow, while the starchy little females, and nod to the fellows who would be standing round, paralyzed into rigid groups for mutual protection. A butler, one of the three in Minneapolis, swung open the door. Amory stepped inside and divested himself of cap and coat. He was mildly surprised not to hear the shrill squawk of conversation from the next room, and he decided it must be quite formal. He approved of that, as he approved of the butler. "'Miss Myra,' he said. To his surprise the butler grinned horribly. "'Oh, yeah,' he declared. "'She's here.' He was unaware that his failure to be cockney was ruining his standing. Emery considered him coldly. "'But,' continued the butler, his voice rising unnecessarily, "'she's the only one what is here. The party's gone.' Emery gasped in sudden horror. "'What?' "'She's been waiting for Amory Blaine. That's you, ain't it? Her mother says that if you showed up by five-thirty you two was to go after him in the Packard.' Amory's despair was crystallized by the appearance of Myra herself, bundled to the ear in a polo-coat, her face plainly sulky, her voice pleasant only with difficulty. "'Lo, Amory.' "'Lo, Myra,' he had described the state of his vitality. "'Well, you got here anyways.' "'Well, I'll, I'll tell you. I guess you don't know about the auto accident,' he romanced. Myra's eyes opened wide. "'Who was it to?' "'Well,' he continued desperately, "'Uncle and Aunt and I—' "'Was anyone killed?' Amory paused and then nodded. "'Your uncle?' Alarm. "'Oh, no, just a horse, a sort of grey horse.' At this point the Erse butler snickered. "'Probably killed the engine,' he suggested. Emery would have put him on the rack without a scruple. "'We'll go now,' said Myra coolly. "'You see, Amory, the bobs were ordered for five, and everybody was here, so we couldn't wait.' "'Well, I couldn't help it, could I? "'So Mama said for me to wait till half-past five. "'We'll catch the bobs before it gets to the Minnehaha Club, Amory.' Amory's shredded poise dropped from him. He pictured the happy party jingling along snowy streets, the appearance of the limousine, the horrible public descent of him and Myra before sixty reproachful eyes, his apology, a real one this time. He sighed aloud. "'What?' inquired Myra. "'Nothing. I was just yawning. Are we going to surely catch up with them before they get there?' He was encouraging a faint hope that they might slip into the Minnehaha Club, and meet the others there, be found in blasé seclusion before the fire, and quite regain his lost attitude. "'Oh, sure, Mike, we'll catch them all right. Let's hurry.' 
he became conscious of his stomach. As they stepped into the machine he hurriedly slapped the paint of diplomacy over a rather box-like plan he had conceived. It was based upon some trade lasts, gleaned at dancing school, to the effect that he was awful good-looking and English, sort of. Myra, he said, lowering his voice and choosing his words carefully, I beg a thousand pardons. Can you ever forgive me? She regarded him gravely, his intent green eyes, his mouth, that to her thirteen-year-old arrow-collar taste was the quintessence of romance. Yes, Myra could forgive him very easily. Why, yes, sure. He looked at her again, and then dropped his eyes. He had lashes. I'm awful, he said sadly. I'm different. I don't know why I make faux pas. Cause I don't care, I suppose. Then, recklessly, I've been smoking too much. I got tobacco heart. Myra pictured an all-night tobacco debauch, with Amory pale and reeling from the effects of nicotined lungs. She gave a little gasp. Oh, Amory, don't smoke. You'll stunt your growth. I don't care, he persisted gloomily. I gotta. I got the habit. I've done a lot of things that if my family knew— he hesitated, giving her imagination time to picture dark horrors. I went to the burlesque show last week. Myra was quite overcome. He turned the green eyes on her again. "'You're the only girl in town I like much,' he exclaimed in a rush of sentiment. "'You're simpatico.' Myra was not sure that she was, but it sounded stylish, though vaguely improper. Thick dusk had descended outside, and as the limousine made a sudden turn she was jolted against him, their hands touched. "'You shouldn't smoke, Amory,' she whispered. "'Don't you know that?' He shook his head. "'Nobody cares.' Myra hesitated. "'I care.' Something stirred within Amory. Oh, yes, you do. You got a crush on Froggy Parker. I guess everybody knows that. No, I haven't. Very slowly. A silence while Amory thrilled. There was something fascinating about Myra, shut away here cosily from the dim, chill air. Myra, a little bundle of clothes, with strands of yellow hair curling out from under her skating cap because I've got a crush, too." He paused, for he heard in the distance the sound of young laughter, and peering through the frosted glass along the lamp-lit street, he made out the dark outline of the bobbing party. He must act quickly. He reached over with a violent, jerky effort, and clutched Myra's hand, her thumb, to be exact. "'Tell him to go to the Minnehaha Street,' he whispered. "'I want to talk to you. I got to talk to you." Myra made out the party ahead, had an instant vision of her mother, and then, alas for convention, glanced into the eyes beside. "'Turn down this side street, Richard, and drive straight to the Minnehaha Club,' she cried through the speaking-tube. Amory sank back against the cushions with a sigh of relief. "'I can kiss her,' 
he thought. I'll bet I can. I'll bet I can. Overhead the sky was half crystalline, half misty, and the night around was chill and vibrant with rich tension. From the country club steps the road stretched away, dark creases on the white blanket, huge heaps of snow lining the sides like the tracks of giant moles. They lingered for a moment on the steps, and watched the white holiday moon. Pale moons like that one, Amory made a vague gesture, make people mysterieuse. You look like a young witch with her cap off and her hair sort of must. Her hands clutched at her hair. Oh, leave it. It looks good. They drifted up the stairs, and Myra led the way into the little den of his dreams, where a cosy fire was burning before a big sink-down couch. A few years later this was to be a great stage for Amory, a cradle for many an emotional crisis. Now they talked for a moment about bobbing parties. "'There's always a bunch of shy fellas,' he commented, sitting at the tail of the bob, sort of looking and whispering and pushing each other off. Then there's always some crazy cross-eyed girl—he gave a terrifying imitation. She's always talking hard, sort of, to the chaperone. You're such a funny boy, puzzled Myra. How do you mean? Amory gave immediate attention, on his own ground at last. Oh, always talking about crazy things. Why don't you come skiing with Marilyn and I tomorrow? I don't like girls in the daytime, he said shortly and then, thinking this a bit abrupt, he added, "'But I like you.' He cleared his throat. <clears> "'I like you first, and second, and third. Myra's eyes became dreamy. What a story this would make to tell Marilyn! Here on the couch with this wonderful-looking boy, the little fire, the sense that they were alone in the great building. Myra capitulated. The atmosphere was too appropriate. "'I like you the first twenty-five,' she confessed, her voice trembling, and Froggy Parker twenty-sixth. Froggy had fallen twenty-five places in one hour. As yet he had not even noticed it. But Amory, being on the spot, leaned over quickly and kissed Myra's cheek. He had never kissed a girl before, and he tasted his lips curiously as if he had munched some new fruit. Then their lips brushed like young wild flowers in the wind. "'We're awful,' rejoined Myra gently. She slipped her hand into his. Her head drooped against his shoulder. Sudden revulsion seized Amory, disgust, loathing for the whole incident. He desired frantically to be away, never to see Myra again, never to kiss anyone. He became conscious of his face and hers, of their clinging hands, and he wanted to creep out of his body and hide somewhere safe, out of sight, up in the corner of his mind. "'Kiss me again,' her voice came out of a great void. "'I don't want to,' he heard himself saying. There was another pause. "'I don't want to,' he repeated passionately. Myra sprang up, her cheeks pink with bruised vanity, the great bow on the back of her head trembling sympathetically. "'I hate you!' she cried. 
Don't you ever dare to speak to me again!' "'What?' stammered Amory. "'I'll tell Mama you kiss me. I will, too. I will, too. I'll tell Mama, and she won't let me play with you.' Amory rose and stared at her helplessly, as though she were a new animal of whose presence on the earth he had not heretofore been aware. The door opened suddenly, and Myra's mother appeared on the threshold, fumbling with her lorgnette. "'Well,' she began, adjusting it benignantly, "'the man at the desk told me you two children were up here. How do you do, Amory?' Amory watched Myra and waited for the crash. But none came. The pout faded, the high pink subsided, and Myra's voice was placid as a summer lake when she answered her mother. "'Oh, we started so late, Mama, that I thought we might as well.' He heard from below the shrieks of laughter, and smelled the vapid odour of hot chocolate and tea-cakes, as he silently followed mother and daughter downstairs. The sound of the gramophone mingled with the voices of many girls humming the air, and a faint glow was born and spread over him. Casey Jones mounted to the cabin, Casey Jones with the orders in his hand, Casey Jones mounted to the cabin, took his farewell journey to the promised land. End of Part One of Chapter One of Book One. Book One, Chapter One, Part Two of This Side of Paradise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald Book One, Chapter One, Part Two Snapshots of the Young Egotist Amory spent nearly two years in Minneapolis. The first winter he wore moccasins that were born yellow, but after many applications of oil and dirt, assumed their mature color, a dirty greenish-brown. He wore a gray plaid Mackinaw coat and a red toboggan cap. His dog, Count Del Monte, ate the red cap, so his uncle gave him a gray one that pulled down over his face. The trouble with this one was that you breathed into it and your breath froze. One day the darn thing froze his cheek. He rubbed snow on his cheek, but it turned bluish-black just the same. The Count Del Monte ate a box of bluing once, but it didn't hurt him. Later, however, he lost his mind and ran madly up the street, bumping into fences, rolling in gutters, and pursuing his eccentric course out of Amory's life. Amory cried on his bed. "'Poor little Count!' he cried. "'Oh, poor little Count!' After several months he suspected Count of a fine piece of emotional acting. Emory and Frog Parker considered that the greatest line in literature occurred in Act Three of Arsène Lupin. They sat in the first row at the Wednesday and Saturday matinees. The line was, If one can't be a great artist or a great soldier, the next best thing is to be a great criminal. Emory fell in love again, and wrote a poem. 
this was it. Marilyn and Sally, those are the girls for me. Marilyn stands above Sally in that sweet, deep love. He was interested in whether McGovern of Minnesota would make the first or second All-American, how to do the card pass, how to do the coin pass, chameleon ties, how babies were born, and whether three-fingered brown was really a better pitcher than Christy Mathewson. Among other things he read, For the Honor of the School, Little Women, twice, The Common Law, Sappho, Dangerous Dan McGrew, The Broad Highway, three times, The Fall of the House of Usher, Three Weeks, Mary Ware, the Little Colonel's Chum, Gunga Din, The Police Gazette, and Jim Jam Jims. He had all the henty biases in history, and was particularly fond of the cheerful murder stories of Mary Roberts Reinhardt. School ruined his French, and gave him a distaste for standard authors. His masters considered him idle, unreliable, and superficially clever. He collected locks of hair from many girls. He wore the rings of several. Finally he could borrow no more rings, owing to his nervous habit of chewing them out of shape. This, it seemed, usually aroused the jealous suspicions of the next borrower. All through the summer months Amory and Frog Parker went each week to the stock company. Afterward they would stroll home in the balmy air of August night, dreaming along Hennepin and Nicolet Avenues, through the gay crowd. Amory wondered whether people could fail to notice that he was a boy marked for glory, and when faces of the throng turned toward him, and ambiguous eyes stared into his, he assumed the most romantic of expressions, and walked on the air cushions that lie on the asphalts of fourteen. Always, after he was in bed, there were voices, indefinite, fading, enchanting, just outside his window, and before he fell asleep he would dream one of his favorite waking dreams, the one about becoming a great halfback, or the one about the Japanese invasion when he was rewarded by being made the youngest general in the world. It was always the becoming he dreamed of, never the being. This too was quite characteristic of Emory. Code of the Young Egotist Before he was summoned back to Lake Geneva, he had appeared, shy but inwardly glowing, in his first long trousers, set off by a purple accordion tie and a Belmont collar with the edges unassailably meeting, purple socks, and handkerchief with a purple border peeping from his breast pocket. But more than that, he had formulated his first philosophy, a code to live by, which, as nearly as it can be named, was a sort of aristocratic egotism. He had realized that his best interests were bound up with those of a certain variant, changing person, whose label, in order that his past might always be identified with him, was Amory Blaine. Amory marked himself a fortunate youth, capable of infinite expansion for good or evil. He did not consider himself a strong character, but relied on his facility, learn things sort of quick, and his superior mentality read a lot of deep books. He was proud of the fact that he could never become a mechanical or scientific genius. From no other heights was he debarred. Physically, Amory thought he was exceedingly handsome, 
He was. He fancied himself an athlete of possibilities and a supple dancer. Socially. Here his condition was, perhaps, most dangerous. He granted himself personality, charm, magnetism, poise, the power of dominating all contemporary males, the gift of fascinating all women. Mentally. Complete, unquestioned superiority. Now a confession will have to be made. Amory had rather a Puritan conscience. Not that he yielded to it. Later in life he almost completely slew it. But at fifteen it made him consider himself a great deal worse than other boys. Unscrupulousness. The desire to influence people in almost every way, even for evil. A certain coldness and lack of affection, amounting sometimes to cruelty. A shifting sense of honour an unholy selfishness, a puzzled, furtive interest in everything concerning sex. There was also a curious strain of weakness running crosswise through his make-up, a harsh phrase from the lips of an older boy older boys usually detested him, was liable to sweep him off his poise into surly sensitiveness or timid stupidity. He was a slave to his own moods, and he felt that though he was capable of recklessness and audacity, he possessed neither courage, perseverance, nor self-respect. Vanity, tempered with self-suspicion, if not self-knowledge, a sense of people as automatons to his will, a desire to pass as many boys as possible and get to a vague top of the world, with this background did Amory drift into adolescence. PREPARATORY TO THE GREAT ADVENTURE The train slowed up with midsummer languor at Lake Geneva, and Amory caught sight of his mother waiting in her electric on the graveled station drive. It was an ancient electric, one of the early types, and painted grey. The sight of her sitting there, slenderly erect, and of her face, where beauty and dignity combined, melting to a dreamy, recollected smile filled him with a sudden great pride of her. As they kissed coolly, and he stepped into the electric, he felt a quick fear lest he had lost the requisite charm to measure up to her. "'Dear boy, you're so tall. Look behind to see if there's anything coming.' She looked left and right. She slipped cautiously into a speed of two miles an hour, beseeching Amory to act as sentinel and at one busy crossing she made him get out and run ahead to signal her forward like a traffic policeman. Beatrice was what might be termed a careful driver. "'You are tall, but you're still very handsome. You've skipped the awkward age. Or is that sixteen? Perhaps it's fourteen or fifteen. I can never remember. But you've skipped it.' "'Don't embarrass me,' murmured Amory. "'But, my dear boy, what odd clothes! They look as if they were a set, don't they? Is your underwear purple, too?' Henry grunted impolitely. "'You must go to Brooks's and get some really nice suits. Oh, we'll have a talk to-night, or perhaps to-morrow night. I want to tell you about your heart. You've probably been neglecting your heart. And you don't know.' Amory thought how superficial was the recent overlay of his own generation. Aside from a minute shyness, 
He felt that the old cynical kinship with his mother had not been one bit broken. Yet for the first few days he wandered about the gardens and along the shore in a state of super-loneliness, finding a lethargic content in smoking bull at the garage with one of the chauffeurs. The sixty acres of the estate were dotted with old and new summer-houses, and many fountains and white benches that came suddenly into sight from foliage-hung hiding-places. There was a great and constantly increasing family of white cats that prowled the many flower-beds, and were silhouetted suddenly at night against the darkening trees. It was on one of the shadowy paths that Beatrice at last captured Emery, after Mr. Blaine had, as usual, retired for the evening to his private library. After reproving him for avoiding her, she took him for a long tete-a-tete -tete in the moonlight. He could not reconcile himself to her beauty, that was mother to his own, the exquisite neck and shoulders, the grace of a fortunate woman of thirty. "'Amory, dear,' she crooned softly, "'I had such a strange, weird time after I left you.' "'Did you, Beatrice?' "'When I had my last breakdown.' She spoke of it as a sturdy, gallant feat. "'The doctors told me,' her voice sang on a confidential note, "'that if any man alive had done the consistent drinking that I have, he would have been physically shattered, my dear, and in his grave, long in his grave.' Amory winced, and wondered how this would have sounded to Froggy Parker. "'Yes,' continued Beatrice, tragically. I had dreams, wonderful visions. She pressed the palms of her hands into her eyes. I saw bronze rivers lapping marble shores, and great birds that soared through the air, party-coloured birds with iridescent plumage. I heard strange music, and the flare of barbaric trumpets. What? Amory had snickered. What, Amory? I said, Go on, Beatrice. That was all. It merely recurred and recurred. Gardens that flaunted colouring against which this would be quite dull. Moons that whirled and swayed, paler than winter moons, more golden than harvest moons. Are you quite well now, Beatrice? Quite well. As well as I will ever be. I am not understood, Amory. I know that can't express it to you, Amory, but— I am not understood." Amory was quite moved. He put his arm around his mother, rubbing his head gently against her shoulder. "'Poor Beatrice! Poor Beatrice! Tell me about you, Amory. Did you have two horrible years?' Amory considered lying, and then decided against it. "'No, Beatrice, I enjoyed them. I adapted myself to the bourgeoisie. I became conventional." He surprised himself by saying that, and he pictured how Froggy would have gaped. "'Beatrice,' he said suddenly, "'I want to go away to school. Everybody in Minneapolis is going to go away to school.' Beatrice showed some alarm. "'But you're only fifteen. Yes, but everybody goes away to school at fifteen, and I want to, Beatrice." On Beatrice's suggestion the subject was dropped for the rest of the walk, but a week later she delighted him by saying, 
Amory, I have decided to let you have your way. If you still want to, you can go to school. Yes? To St. Regis's in Connecticut. Amory felt a quick excitement. It's being arranged, continued Beatrice. It's better that you should go away. I'd have preferred you to have gone to Eton, and then to Christchurch, Oxford, but it seems impracticable now. And for the present we'll let the university question take care of itself. What are you going to do, Beatrice? Heaven knows. It seems my fate to fret away my years in this country. Not for a second do I regret being American. Indeed, I think that a regret typical of very vulgar people, and I feel sure we are the great coming nation. Yet, and she sighed, I feel my life should have drowsed away close to an older, mellower civilization, a land of greens and autumnal browns. Amory did not answer, so his mother continued. My regret is that you haven't been abroad, but still, as you are a man, it's better that you should grow up here under the snarling eagle. Is that the right term? Amory agreed that it was. She would not have appreciated the Japanese invasion. When do I go to school? Next month. You'll have to start east a little early to take your examinations. After that you'll have a free week, so I want you to go up the Hudson and pay a visit. To who? To Monseigneur Darcy, Amory. He wants to see you. He went to Harrow and then to Yale, became a Catholic. I want him to talk to you. I feel he can be such a help. She stroked his auburn hair gently. Dear Amory, dear Amory. Dear Beatrice. So early in September, Amory, provided with six suits summer underwear, six suits winter underwear, one sweater or t-shirt, one jersey, one overcoat, winter, etc., set out for New England, the land of schools. There were Andover and Exeter with their memories of New England dead, large college-like democracies. St. Mark's, Groton, St. Regis's, recruited from Boston and the Knickerbocker families of New York, St. Paul's, with its great ranks, Pomfret and St. George's, prosperous and well-dressed, Taft and Hotchkiss, which prepared the wealth of the Middle West for social success at Yale, Pauling, Westminster, Choate, Kent, and a hundred others, all milling out their well-set-up, conventional, impressive type year after year, their mental stimulus the college entrance exams, their vague purpose set forth in a hundred circulars as, to impart a thorough mental, moral, and physical training as a Christian gentleman, to fit the boy for meeting the problems of his day and generation, and to give a solid foundation to the arts and sciences. At St. Regis's, Amory stayed three days and took his exams with a scoffing confidence then doubling back to New York to pay his tutelary visit. The metropolis, barely glimpsed, made little impression on him, except for the sense of cleanliness he drew from the tall white buildings seen from a Hudson River steamboat in the early morning. Indeed his mind was so crowded with dreams of athletic prowess at school that he considered this visit 
only as a rather tiresome prelude to the great adventure. This, however, it did not prove to be. Monsignor Darcy's house was an ancient, rambling structure set on a hill overlooking the river, and there lived its owner, between his trips to all parts of the Roman Catholic world, rather like an exiled Stuart king waiting to be called to the rule of his land. Monsignor was forty-four then, and bustling, a trifle too stout for symmetry, with hair the colour of spun gold, and a brilliant, enveloping personality. When he came into a room clad in his full purple regalia from thatch to toe, he resembled a Turner sunset, and attracted both admiration and attention. He had written two novels, one of them violently anti-Catholic, just before his conversion, and five years later another, in which he had attempted to turn all his clever jibes against Catholics into even cleverer innuendos against Episcopalians. He was intensely ritualistic, startlingly dramatic, loved the idea of God enough to be a celibate, and rather liked his neighbour. Children adored him because he was like a child. Youth revelled in his company because he was still a youth, and couldn't be shocked. In the proper land and century he might have been a Richelieu. At present he was a very moral, very religious, if not particularly pious, clergyman, making a great mystery about pulling rusty wires, and appreciating life to the fullest, if not entirely enjoying it. He and Amory took to each other at first sight, the jovial, impressive prelate who could dazzle an embassy ball, and the green-eyed, intent youth, in his first long trousers, accepted in their own minds a relation of father and son within a half-hour's conversation. "'My dear boy, I've been waiting to see you for years. Take a big chair, and we'll have a chat.' "'I've just come from school. St. Regis's, you know.' "'So your mother says. A remarkable woman. Have a cigarette. I'm sure you smoke. Well, if you're like me, you loathe all science and mathematics.' Amory nodded vehemently. "'Hate em all. Like English and history.' "'Of course.' You'll hate school for a while, too, but I'm glad you're going to St. Regis's. Why? Because it's a gentleman's school, and democracy won't hit you so early. You'll find plenty of that in college. I want to go to Princeton, said Amory. I don't know why, but I think of all Harvard men as sissies, like I used to be, and all Yale men as wearing big blue sweaters and smoking pipes. Monsignor chuckled. I'm one, you know. Oh, you're different. I think of Princeton as being lazy and good-looking and aristocratic, you know, like a spring day. Harvard seems sort of indoors. And Yale is November, crisp and energetic, finished Monseigneur. That's it. They slipped briskly into an intimacy from which they never recovered. I was for Bonnie Prince Charlie, announced Amory. Of course you were. And for Hannibal? Yes, and the Southern Confederacy. He was rather sceptical about being an Irish patriot. He suspected that being Irish was being somewhat common, but Monseigneur assured him that Ireland was a romantic lost cause and Irish people quite charming, and that it should by all means be one of his principal biases. After a crowded hour which included several more cigarettes, 
and during which Monseigneur learned, to his surprise but not to his horror, that Amory had not been brought up a Catholic, he announced that he had another guest. This turned out to be the Honourable Thornton Hancock, of Boston, ex-minister to The Hague, author of an erudite history of the Middle Ages, and the last of a distinguished, patriotic, and brilliant family. "'He comes here for a rest,' said Monseigneur confidentially, treating Amory as a contemporary. "'I act as an escape from the weariness of agnosticism, and I think I'm the only man who knows how his staid old mind is really at sea, and longs for a sturdy spar like the church to cling to.' Their first luncheon was one of the memorable events of Amory's early life. He was quite radiant and gave off a peculiar brightness and charm. Monseigneur called out the best that he had thought by question and suggestion, and Amory talked with an ingenious brilliance of a thousand impulses and desires and repulsions and faiths and fears. He and Monseigneur held the floor, and the older man, with his less receptive, less accepting, yes, certainly not colder mentality, seemed content to listen and bask in the mellow sunshine that played between these two. Monseigneur gave the effect of sunlight to many people. Amory gave it in his youth, and, to some extent, when he was very much older, but never again was it quite so mutually spontaneous. "'He's a radiant boy,' thought Thornton Hancock, who had seen the splendour of two continents, and talked with Parnell and Gladstone and Bismarck, and afterward he added to Monseigneur, "'But his education ought not to be entrusted to a school or college.' But for the next four years the best of Amory's intellect was concentrated on matters of popularity, the intricacies of a university social system, and American society as represented by Biltmore Tees and Hot Springs Golf Links. In all, a wonderful week! that saw Amory's mind turned inside out, a hundred of his theories confirmed, and his joy of life crystallized to a thousand ambitions. Not that the conversation was scholastic, heaven forbid! Amory had only the vaguest idea as to what Bernard Shaw was, but Monseigneur made quite as much out of the beloved vagabond and Sir Nigel, taking good care that Amory never once felt out of his depth. But the trumpets were sounding for Amory's preliminary skirmish with his own generation. "'You're not sorry to go, of course. With people like us our home is where we are not,' said Monseigneur. "'I am sorry.' "'No, you're not. No one person in the world is necessary to you or to me.' "'Well, good-bye.' End of this part of chapter 1This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald Book One, Chapter One, Third Part This begins entitled The Egotist Down.
Emery's two years at St. Regis's, though in turn painful and triumphant, had as little real significance in his own life as the American prep school, crushed as it is under the heel of the universities, has to American life in general. We have no Eton to create the self-consciousness of a governing class. We have, instead, clean, flaccid and innocuous preparatory schools. He went all wrong at the start, was generally considered both conceited and arrogant, and universally detested. He played football intensely, alternating a reckless brilliancy with a tendency to keep himself as safe from hazard as decency would permit. In a wild panic he backed out of a fight with a boy his own size, to a chorus of scorn, and a week later, in desperation, picked a battle with another boy very much bigger, from which he emerged badly beaten, but rather proud of himself. He was resentful against all those in authority over him, and this, combined with a lazy indifference toward his work, exasperated every master in school. He grew discouraged and imagined himself a pariah took to sulking in corners and reading after lights. With a dread of being alone he attached a few friends, but since they were not among the elite of the school, he used them simply as mirrors of himself, audiences before which he might do that posing absolutely essential to him. He was unbearably lonely, desperately unhappy. There were some few grains of comfort. Whenever Amory was submerged, his vanity was the last part to go below the surface, so he could still enjoy a comfortable glow when Wookie Wookie, the deaf old housekeeper, told him that he was the best-looking boy she had ever seen. It had pleased him to be the lightest and youngest man on the first football squad. It pleased him when Dr. Dougal told him at the end of a heated conference that he could, if he wished, get the best marks in school. But Dr. Dougal was wrong. It was temperamentally impossible for Amory to get the best marks in school. Miserable, confined to bounds, unpopular with both faculty and students, that was Amory's first term. But at Christmas he had returned to Minneapolis, tight-lipped and strangely jubilant. "'Oh, I was sort of fresh at first, he told Frog Parker patronizingly. "'But I got along fine. Lightest man on the squad. You ought to go away to school, Froggy. It's great stuff.' Incident of the Well-Meaning Professor On the last night of his first term, Mr. Margotson, the senior master, sent word to study hall that Amory was to come to his room at nine. Amory suspected that advice was forthcoming, but he determined to be courteous, because this Mr. Margotson had been kindly disposed toward him. His summoner received him gravely, and motioned him to a chair. He hemmed several times, and looked consciously kind, as a man will when he knows he's on delicate ground. "'Amory,' he began, "'I've sent for you on a personal matter.' "'Yes, sir.' "'I've noticed you this year, and I—I I like you. I think you have in you the makings of a, a very good man.' "'Yes, sir,' Amory managed to articulate. He hated having people talk as if he were an admitted failure. "'But I've noticed,' continued the older man blindly, "'that you're not very popular with the boys.' "'No, sir.' Amory licked his lips. "'Ah! I thought you might not understand exactly what it was they, uh, objected to. I'm going to tell you, 
because I believe uh, that when a boy knows his difficulties he's better able to cope with them, uh, to conform to what others expect of him. He ahemmed again with delicate reticence, and continued, <clears throat> They seem to think that you're, um, rather too fresh. Amory could stand no more. He rose from his chair, scarcely controlling his voice when he spoke. I know. Oh, don't you suppose I know? His voice rose. I know what they think. Do you suppose you have to tell me? He paused. I'm... I've got to go back now. Hope I'm not rude. He left the room hurriedly. In the cool air outside, as he walked to his house, he exulted in his refusal to be helped. That damn old fool! he cried wildly, as if I didn't know. He decided, however, that this was a good excuse not to go back to study hall that night, so, comfortably couched up in his room, he munched Nabisco's and finished the white company. INCIDENT OF THE WONDERFUL GIRL There was a bright star in February. New York burst upon him on Washington's birthday with the brilliance of a long-anticipated event. His glimpse of it as a vivid whiteness against a deep blue sky had left a picture of splendor that rivaled the dream cities in the Arabian Nights. But this time he saw it by electric light, and romance gleamed from the chariot race sign on Broadway and from the women's eyes at the Astor, where he and young Paskert from St. Regis's had dinner. When they walked down the aisle of the theatre, greeted by the nervous twanging and discord of untuned violins, and the sensuous heavy fragrance of paint and powder, he moved in a sphere of epicurean delight. Everything enchanted him. The play was The Little Millionaire, with George M. Cohen, and there was one stunning young brunette who made him sit with brimming eyes in the ecstasy of watching her dance. Oh, you wonderful girl! Oh, you wonderful girl, what a wonderful girl you are! sang the tenor, and Amory agreed silently but passionately. All your wonderful worlds thrill me through. The violin swelled and quavered on the last notes, the girl sank to a crumpled butterfly on the stage, a great burst of clapping filled the house. Oh, to fall in love like that, to the languorous magic melody of such a tune! The last scene was laid on a roof-garden, and the cellos sighed to the musical moon, while light adventure and facile froth-like comedy flitted back and forth in the calcium. Amory was on fire to be an habitué of roof-gardens, to meet a girl who should look like that. Better, that very girl, whose hair would be drenched with golden moonlight, while at his elbow sparkling wine was poured by an unintelligible waiter. When the curtain fell for the last time he gave such a long sigh that the people in front of him twisted round and stared, and said loud enough for him to hear, "'What a remarkable-looking boy!' This took his mind off the play, and he wondered if he really did seem handsome to the population of New York. Paskert and he walked in silence toward their hotel. The former was the first to speak. His uncertain fifteen-year-old voice broke in, in a melancholy strain on Amory's musings. "'I'd marry that girl to-night!' 
There was no need to ask what girl he referred to. "'I'd be proud to take her home and introduce her to my people,' continued Paskert. Amory was distinctly impressed. He wished he had said it instead of Paskert. It sounded so... mature. "'I wonder about actresses. Are they all pretty bad?' "'No, sir, not by a darn sight,' said the worldly youth with emphasis. "'And I know that girl's as good as gold. I can tell.' They wandered on, mixing in the Broadway crowd, dreaming on the music that eddied out of the cafés. New faces flashed on and off like myriad lights, pale or rouged faces, tired yet sustained by a weary excitement. Amory watched them in fascination. He was planning his life. He was going to live in New York, and be known at every restaurant and café, wearing a dress suit from early evening to early morning, sleeping away the dull hours of the forenoon. "'Yes, sir, I'd marry that girl to-night.' heroic in general tone. October of his second and last year at St. Regis's was a high point in Amory's memory. The game with Groton was played from three of a snappy, exhilarating afternoon far into the crisp autumnal twilight, and Amory at quarterback, exhorting in wild despair, making impossible tackles, calling signals in a voice that had diminished to a hoarse, furious whisper yet found time to revel in the blood-stained bandage around his head, and the straining, glorious heroism of plunging, crashing bodies and aching limbs. For those minutes courage flowed like wine out of the November dusk, and he was the eternal hero, one with the sea-rover on the prow of a Norse galley, one with Roland and Horatius, Sir Nigel and Ted Coy, scraped and stripped into trim and then flung by his own will into the breach beating back the tide, hearing from afar the thunder of cheers, finally bruised and weary, but still elusive, circling an end, twisting, changing pace, straight-arming, falling behind the grotten goal with two men on his legs, in the only touchdown of the game. THE PHILOSOPHY OF THE SLICKER from the scoffing superiority of sixth-form year and success, Amory looked back with cynical wonder on his status of the year before. He was changed as completely as Amory Blaine could ever be changed. Amory plus Beatrice plus two years in Minneapolis, these had been his ingredients when he entered St. Regis's. But the Minneapolis years were not a thick enough overlay to conceal the Amory plus Beatrice. From the ferreting eyes of a boarding-school, so St. Regis's had very painfully drilled Beatrice out of him, and begun to lay down new and more conventional planking on the fundamental Amory. But both St. Regis and Amory were unconscious of the fact that this fundamental Amory had not in himself changed. Those qualities for which he had suffered, his moodiness, his tendency to pose, his laziness and his love of playing the fool, were now taken as a matter of course recognized eccentricities in a star quarterback, a clever actor, and the editor of the St. Regis Tatler. It puzzled him to see impressionable small boys imitating the very vanities that had not long ago been contemptible weaknesses. After the football season he slumped into dreamy content. 
The night of the pre-holiday dance he slipped away and went early to bed for the pleasure of hearing the violin music cross the grass and come surging in at his window. Many nights he lay there dreaming awake of secret cafés in Montmartre, where ivory women delved in romantic mysteries with diplomats and soldiers of fortune, while orchestras played Hungarian waltzes, and the air was thick and exotic with intrigue, and moonlight, and adventure. In the spring he read L'Allegro, by request, and was inspired to lyrical outpourings on the subject of Arcady and the pipes of Pan. He moved his bed so that the sun would wake him at dawn, that he might dress and go out to the archaic swing that hung from an apple-tree near the sixth-form house. Sitting himself in this he would pump higher and higher, until he got the effect of swinging into the wide air, into a fairyland of piping satyrs and nymphs, with the faces of fair-haired girls he passed in the streets of Eastchester. As the swing reached its highest point, Arkady really lay just over the brow of a certain hill, where the brown road dwindled out of sight in a golden dot. He read voluminously all spring, the beginning of his eighteenth year, the gentleman from Indiana, the new Arabian Nights, the morals of Marcus Ordine, the man who was Thursday, which he liked without understanding, Stover at Yale, that became somewhat of a textbook, Dombey and Son, because he thought he really should read better stuff, Robert Chambers, David Graham Phillips, and E. Phillips Oppenheim complete, and a scattering of Tennyson and Kipling. Of all his classwork, only L'Allegro, and some quality of rigid clarity and solid geometry, stirred his languid interest. As June drew near, he felt the need of a conversation to formulate his own ideas, and, to his surprise, found a co-philosopher in Rahil, the president of the Sixth Form. In many a talk, on the high road or lying belly down along the edge of the baseball diamond, or late at night with their cigarettes glowing in the dark, they threshed out the questions of school, and there was developed the term slicker. "'Got tobacco?' whispered Rahil one night, putting his head inside the door five minutes after lights. "'Sure. I'm coming in. Take a couple of pillows and lie in the window-seat, why don't you?' Amory sat up in bed and lit a cigarette while Rahil settled for a conversation. Rahil's favorite subject was the respective futures of the sixth form, and Amory never tired of outlining them for his benefit. "'Ted Converse? That's easy. He'll fail his exams, tutor all summer at Harstrom's, get into chef with about four conditions, <laughs> and flunk out in the middle of the freshman year. Then he'll go back west and raise hell for a year or so. Finally his father will make him go into the paint business. He'll marry and have four sons, all boneheads. He'll always think St. Regis has spoiled him, so he'll send his sons to day school in Portland. He'll die of locomotor ataxia when he's forty-one, and his wife will give a baptizing stand, or whatever you call it, to the Presbyterian Church, with his name on it. Hold up, Amory, that's too darn gloomy. How about yourself? I'm in a superior class. You are, too. We're philosophers. <laughs> I'm not. Sure you are. You've got a darn good head on you. 
but Amory knew that nothing in the abstract, no theory or generality ever moved Rahil until he stubbed his toe upon the concrete minutiae of it. "'Haven't?' insisted Rahil. "'I let people impose on me here and don't get anything out of it. I'm the prey of my friends, damn it. Do their lessons, get em out of trouble, pay em stupid summer visits, and always entertain their kid sisters. Keep my temper when they get selfish, and then they think they'll pay me back by voting for me and telling me I'm the big man of St. Regis's. I want to get where everybody does their own work, and I can tell people where to go. I'm tired of being nice to every poor fish in school." "'You're not a slicker,' said Amory suddenly. "'A what?' "'A slicker.' "'What What the devil's that?' "'Well, it's something that—that—there's a lot of them. You're not one, and neither am I, though I am more than you are.' "'Who is one? What makes you one?' Amory considered. "'Why, why, I suppose that the sign of it is when a fellow slicks his hair back with water.' <laughs> "'Like Carstairs?' "'Yes, sure, he's a slicker.' They spent two evenings getting an exact definition. The slicker was good-looking or clean-looking, he had brains, social brains, that is, and he used all means on the broad path of honesty to get ahead, be popular, admired, and never in trouble. He dressed well, was particularly neat in appearance, and derived his name from the fact that his hair was inevitably worn short, soaked in water or tonic, parted in the middle, and slicked back as the current of fashion dictated the slickers of that year had adopted tortoise-shell spectacles, as badges of their slickerhood, and this made them so easy to recognize that Amory and Rahil never missed one. The slicker seemed distributed through school, always a little wiser and shrewder than his contemporaries, managing some team or other, and keeping his cleverness carefully concealed. Amory found the slicker a most valuable classification until his junior year in college when the outline became so blurred and indeterminate that it had to be subdivided many times, and became only a quality. Amory's secret ideal had all the slicker qualifications, but in addition courage and tremendous brains and talents. Also Amory conceded him a bizarre streak that was quite irreconcilable to the slicker proper. This was a first real break from the hypocrisy of school tradition. The slicker was a definite element of success, differing intrinsically from the prep school big man. The slicker. 1. Clever sense of social values. 2. Dresses well, pretends that dress is superficial, but knows that it isn't. 3. Goes into such activities as he can shine in. 4. Gets to college and is, in a worldly way, successful. 5. Hair slicked. The Big Man. 1. Inclined to stupidity and unconscious of social values. 2. Thinks dress is superficial and is inclined to be careless about it. 3. Goes out for everything from a sense of duty. 4. Gets to college and has a problematical future. Feels lost without his circle and always says that school days were happiest after all. Goes back to school and makes speeches about what St. Regis's boys are doing. 5. Hair not slicked. 
Amory had decided definitely on Princeton, even though he would be the only boy entering that year from St. Regis's. Yale had a romance and glamour from the tales of Minneapolis and St. Regis's men who had been tapped for skull and bones, but Princeton drew him most, with its atmosphere of bright colours and its alluring reputation as the pleasantest country club in America. Dwarfed by the menacing college exams, Amory's school days drifted into the past. Years afterward, when he went back to St. Regis, he seemed to have forgotten the successes of sixth-form year, and to be able to picture himself only as the unadjustable boy who had hurried down corridors cheered at by his rabid contemporaries mad with common sense. End of chapter Book One, Chapter Two of this side of paradise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Book One, Chapter Two, entitled Spires and Gargoyles. At first Amory noticed only the wealth of sunshine creeping across the long green swards, dancing on the leaded window-panes, and swimming around the tops of spires and towers and battlemented walls. Gradually he realized that he was really walking up University Place, self-conscious about his suitcase, developing a new tendency to glare straight ahead when he passed anyone. Several times he could have sworn that men turned to look at him critically. He wondered vaguely if there was something the matter with his clothes, and wished he had shaved that morning on the train. He felt unnecessarily stiff and awkward among these white-flanneled, bareheaded youths, who must be juniors and seniors, judging from the savoir-faire with which they strolled. He found that Twelve University Place was a large, dilapidated mansion, at present apparently uninhabited, though he knew it housed usually a dozen freshmen. After a hurried skirmish with his landlady he sallied out on a tour of exploration, but he had gone scarcely a block when he became horribly conscious that he must be the only man in town who was wearing a hat. He returned hurriedly to Twelve University, left his derby, and, emerging bareheaded, loitered down Nassau Street, stopping to investigate a display of athletic photographs in a store window, including a large one of Allenby, the football captain, and next attracted by the sign Jigger's Shop over a confectionery window. This sounded familiar, so he sauntered in and took a seat on a high stool. "'Chocolate Sunday," he told a colored person. "'Double chocolate jigger? Anything else?' "'Why, yes.' "'Bacon bun?' "'Why, yes.' He munched four of these, finding them of pleasing savour, and then consumed another double chocolate jigger before ease descended upon him. After a cursory inspection of the pillowcases, leather pennants, and Gibson girls that lined the walls, he left, and continued along Nassau Street with his hands in his pockets. Gradually he was learning to distinguish between upper-classmen and entering men, even though the freshman cap would not appear until the following Monday. 
Those who were too obviously, too nervously at home, were freshmen, for as each train brought a new contingent it was immediately absorbed into the hatless, white-shod, book-laden throng, whose function seemed to be to drift endlessly up and down the street, emitting great clouds of smoke from brand-new pipes. By afternoon Amory realized that now the newest arrivals were taking him for an upperclassman, and he tried conscientiously to look both pleasantly blasé and casually critical, which was as near as he could analyze the prevalent facial expression. At five o'clock he felt the need of hearing his own voice, so he retreated to his house to see if anyone else had arrived. Having climbed the rickety stairs, he scrutinized his room resignedly, concluding that it was hopeless to attempt any more inspired decoration than class banners and tiger pictures. There was a tap at the door. "'Come in!' A slim face with grey eyes and a humorous smile appeared on the doorway. "'Got a hammer?' "'No, sorry. Maybe Mrs. Twelve, or whatever she goes by, has one.' The stranger advanced into the room. "'You an inmate of this asylum?' Amory nodded. "'Awful barn for the rent we pay.' Amory had to agree that it was. "'I thought of the campus,' he said, "'but they say there's so few freshmen that they're lost. Have to sit around and study for something to do.' The grey-eyed man decided to introduce himself. "'My name's Holliday.' "'Blaine's my name.' They shook hands with a fashionable low swoop. Amory grinned. Where'd you prep? Andover. Where did you? St. Regis's. Oh, did you? I had a cousin there. They discussed the cousin thoroughly, and then Holliday announced that he was to meet his brother for dinner at six. Come along and have a bite with us. All right. At the Kenilworth, Amory met Burn Holliday. He of the grey eyes was Carrie and during a limpid meal of thin soup and anemic vegetables they stared at the other freshmen, who sat either in small groups looking very ill at ease, or in large groups seeming very much at home. "'I hear Commons is pretty bad,' said Amory. "'That's the rumour, but you've got to eat there, or pay anyways. Crime! Imposition! Oh, at Princeton you've got to swallow everything the first year. It's like a damned prep school.' Amory agreed. "'A lot of pep, though,' he insisted. "'I wouldn't have gone to Yale for a million. Me either.' "'You going out for anything?' inquired Amory of the elder brother. "'Not, not me. Burn here is going out for the Prince. The Daily Princetonian, you know.' "'Yes, I know.' "'You going out for anything?' "'Why, yes. I'm going to take a whack at freshman football.' play at St. Regis's?" Some, admitted Amory depreciatingly, but I'm getting so damn thin. You're not thin. Well, I used to be stocky last fall. Oh. After supper they attended the movies, where Amory was fascinated by the glib comments of a man in front of him, as well as by the wild yelling and shouting, Yo-ho! Oh, honey baby, you're so big and strong, but oh, so gentle. Clinch. Oh, clinch. Kiss her, kiss that lady, quick. Oh. A group began whistling, by the sea, and the audience took it up noisily. 
This was followed by an indistinguishable song that included much stamping, and then by an endless, incoherent dirge. Oh, she works in a jam factory, and that may be all right, but you can't fool me, for I know damn well that she don't make jam all night. Oh. As they pushed out, giving and receiving curious impersonal glances, Amory decided that he liked the movies, wanted to enjoy them as the row of upperclassmen in front had enjoyed them, with their arms along the backs of the seats, their comments Gaelic and caustic, their attitude a mixture of critical wit and tolerant amusement. "'Want a Sunday? I, I mean a jigger?' asked Carey. "'Sure.' They suppered heavily, and then, still sauntering, eased back to twelve. "'A wonderful night. It's a whiz. You men going to unpack?' "'Guess so. Come on, Burn. Amory decided to sit for a while on the front steps, so he bade them good night. The great tapestries of trees had darkened to ghosts back at the last edge of twilight. The early moon had drenched the arches with pale blue, and weaving over the night, in and out of the gossamer rifts of moon, swept a song, a song with more than a hint of sadness, infinitely transient, infinitely regretful. He remembered that an alumnus of the nineties had told him of one of Booth Tarkington's amusements, standing in mid-campus in the small hours and singing tenor songs to the stars, arousing mingled emotions in the couched undergraduates according to the sentiment of their moods. Now, far down the shadowy line of University Place, a white-clad phalanx broke the gloom, and marching figures, white-shirted, white-trousered, swung rhythmically up the street, with linked arms and heads thrown back, going back, going back, going back to Nassau Hall, going back, going back, to the best old place of all, going back, going back, from all this earthly ball, we'll clear the track as we go back, going back to Nassau Hall. Amory closed his eyes as the ghostly procession drew near. The song soared so high that all dropped out except the tenors, who bore the melody triumphantly past the danger-point, and relinquished it to the fantastic chorus. Then Amory opened his eyes, half afraid that sight would spoil the rich illusion of harmony. He sighed eagerly. There at the head of the white platoon marched Allenby, the football captain, slim and defiant as if aware that this year the hopes of the college rested on him, that his hundred and sixty pounds were expected to dodge to victory through the heavy blue and crimson lines. Fascinated, Amory watched each rank of linked arms as it came abreast, the faces indistinct above the polo shirts, the voices blent in a paean of triumph, and then the procession passed through shadowy Campbell Arch, and the voices grew fainter as it wound eastward over the campus. The minutes passed, and Amory sat there very quietly. He regretted the rule that would forbid freshmen to be outdoors after curfew, for he wanted to ramble through the shadowy scented lanes, where Witherspoon brooded like a dark mother over Wig and Cleo, her attic children, where the black Gothic snake of Little curled down to Kyler and Patton these in turn flinging the mystery out over the placid slope rolling to the lake. 
Princeton of the daytime filtered slowly into his consciousness, West and Reunion, redolent of the sixties, Seventy-Nine Hall, brick-red and arrogant, Upper and Lower Pine, aristocratic Elizabethan ladies not quite content to live among shopkeepers, and, topping all, climbing with clear blue aspiration, the great dreaming spires of Holder and Cleveland Towers. From the first he loved Princeton, its lazy beauty, its half-grasped significance, the wild moonlight revel of the rushes, the handsome, prosperous, big-game crowds, and under it all the air of struggle that pervaded his class. From the day when, wild-eyed and exhausted, the jerseyed freshmen sat in the gymnasium and elected someone from Hill School, class president, a Lawrenceville celebrity, vice-president, a hockey star from St. Paul's, secretary, up until the end of sophomore year, it never ceased, that breathless social system, that worship, seldom named, never really admitted, of the bogey big man. First it was schools, and Amory, alone from St. Regis's, watched the crowds form and widen and form again, St. Paul's, Hill, Pomfret, eating at certain tacitly reserved tables and commons, dressing in their own corners of the gymnasium, and drawing unconsciously about them a barrier of the slightly less important but socially ambitious to protect them from the friendly, rather puzzled high school element. From the moment he realized this, Amory resented social barriers as artificial distinctions made by the strong to bolster up their weak retainers and keep out the almost strong. Having decided to be one of the gods of the class, he reported for freshman football practice, but in the second week, playing quarterback, already paragraphed in corners of the Princetonian, he wrenched his knee seriously enough to put him out for the rest of the season. This forced him to retire and consider the situation. Twelve Unive housed a dozen miscellaneous question marks. There were three or four inconspicuous and quite startled boys from Lawrenceville, two amateur wild men from a New York private school, Carrie Holliday christened them the plebeian drunks, a Jewish youth, also from New York, and, as compensation for Amory, the two Hollidays, to whom he took an instant fancy. The Hollidays were rumoured twins, but really the dark-haired one, Carrie, was a year older than his blond brother, Byrne. Carrie was tall, with humorous grey eyes, and a sudden, attractive smile. He became at once the mentor of the house, reaper of ears that grew too high, censor of conceit, vendor of rare satirical humour. Amory spread the table of their future friendship with all his ideas of what college should and did mean. Carrie, not inclined as yet to take things seriously, chided him gently for being curious at this inopportune time about the intricacies of the social system, but liked him and was both interested and amused. Byrne, fair-haired, silent and intent, appeared in the house only as a busy apparition, gliding in quietly at night and off again in the early morning to get up his work in the library. He was out for the Princetonian, competing furiously against forty others for the coveted first place. In December he came down with diphtheria, and someone else won the competition, but, returning to college in February, he dauntlessly went after the prize again. Necessarily, Amory's acquaintance with him was in the way of three-minute chats, 
walking to and from lectures, so he failed to penetrate Burns's one absorbing interest and find what lay beneath it. Emery was far from contented. He missed the place he had won at St. Regis's, the being known and admired, yet Princeton stimulated him, and there were many things ahead calculated to arouse the Machiavelli latent in him, could he but insert a wedge. The upper-class clubs, concerning which he had pumped a reluctant graduate during the previous summer, excited his curiosity. Ivy, detached and breathlessly aristocratic, cottage, an impressive melange of brilliant adventurers and well-dressed philanderers, Tiger Inn, broad-shouldered and athletic, vitalized by an honest elaboration of prep-school standards, cap and gown, anti-alcoholic, faintly religious and politically powerful, flamboyant colonial, literary quadrangle, and the dozen others varying in age and position. Anything which brought an underclassman into too glaring a light was labelled with the damning brand of running it out. The movies thrived on caustic comments, but the men who made them were generally running it out. Talking of clubs was running it out. Standing for anything very strongly, as for instance drinking parties or teetotaling, was running it out. In short, being personally conspicuous was not tolerated and the influential man was the non-committal man, until at club elections in sophomore year everyone should be sewed up in some bag for the rest of his college career. Amory found that writing for the Nassau Literary Magazine would get him nothing, but that being on the board of the Daily Princetonian would get anyone a good deal. His vague desire to do immortal acting with the English Dramatic Association faded out when he found that the most ingenious brains and talents were concentrated upon the Triangle Club, a musical comedy organization that every year took a great Christmas trip. In the meanwhile, feeling strangely alone and restless in commons, with new desires and ambitions stirring in his mind, he let the first term go by between an envy of the embryo successes and a puzzled fretting with Carey as to why they were not accepted immediately among the elite of the class. Many afternoons they lounged in the windows of Twelve Unive, and watched the class pass to and from commons, noting satellites already attaching themselves to the more prominent, watching the lonely grind with his hurried step and downcast eye, envying the happy security of the big school groups. "'We're the damned middle class, that's what,' he complained to Carrie one day as he lay stretched out on the sofa consuming a family of Fatimas with contemplative precision. "'Well, why not? We came to Princeton so we could feel that way toward the small colleges. Have it on them. More self-confidence, dress better, cut a swath. "'Oh, it isn't that I mind the glittering caste system,' admitted Amory. "'I like having a bunch of hot cats on top. But gosh, Carrie, I've got to be one of them.' But just now, Amory, you're only a sweaty bourgeois." Amory lay for a moment without speaking. "'I won't be long,' he said finally. "'But I hate to get anywhere by working for it. I'll show the marks, don't you know?' "'Honorable scars!' Carrie craned his neck suddenly at the street. "'There's Languedoc, if you want to see what he looks like, and Humber just behind.' Amory rose dynamically and sought the windows. "'Oh,' 
he said, scrutinizing these worthies. Humbird looks like a knockout, but this Languedoc, he's the rugged type, isn't he? I distrust that sort. All diamonds look big in the rough. Well, said Carey, as the excitement subsided, you're a literary genius. It's up to you. I wonder, Amory paused, if I could be. I honestly think so sometimes. That sounds like the devil, and I wouldn't say it to anybody except you. Well, go ahead. Let your hair grow and write poems like this guy Denvilliers in the lit. Amory reached lazily at a pile of magazines on the table. Read his latest effort? Never miss them. They're rare. Amory glanced through the issue. Hello, he said in surprise. He's a freshman, isn't he? Yeah. Listen to this. My God! A serving lady speaks. Black velvet trails its folds over the day. White tapers, prisoned in their silver frames, wave their thin flames like shadows in the wind. Pia, Pompia, come, come away. Now what the devil does that mean? It's a pantry scene. Her toes are stiffened like a stork's in flight. She's laid upon her bed, on the white sheets. Her hands pressed on her, smooth bust like a saint. Bella Coniza, come into the light. My gosh, Carrie, what in hell is it all about? I swear I don't get him at all, and I'm a literary bird myself. It's pretty tricky, said Carrie. Only you've got to think of hearses and stale milk when you read it. That isn't as posh as some of them." Amory tossed the magazine on the table. "'Well,' he sighed, "'I sure am up in the air. I know I'm not a regular fellow, yet I loathe anybody else that isn't. I can't decide whether to cultivate my mind and be a great dramatist, or to thumb my nose at the Golden Treasury and be a Princeton slicker.' "'Why decide?' suggested Carey. "'Better drift, like me.' I'm going to sail into prominence on Burns' coattails. I can't drift. I want to be interested. I want to pull strings, even for somebody else, or be Princetonian chairman or triangle president. I want to be admired, Carrie. You're thinking too much about yourself. Amory sat up at this. No, I'm thinking about you, too. We've got to get out and mix around the class right now when it's fun to be a snob. I'd like to bring a sardine to the prom in June, for instance, but I wouldn't do it unless I could be damned debonair about it, introduce her to all the prize parlor snakes, and the football captain, and all that simple stuff." "'Amory,' said Carrie impatiently, "'you're just going around in a circle. If you want to be prominent, get out and try for something. If you don't, just take it easy.' He yawned. Come on, let's let the smoke drift off. We'll go down and watch football practice." Emery gradually accepted this point of view, decided that next fall would inaugurate his career, and relinquished himself to watching Carrie extract joy from twelve univers. They filled the Jewish youth's bed with lemon pie. They put out the gas all over the house every night by blowing into the jet in Emery's room to the bewilderment of Mrs. Twelve and the local plumber, 
they set up the effects of the plebeian drunks, pictures, books, and furniture, in the bathroom, to the confusion of the pair, who hazily discovered the transposition on their return from a Trenton spree. They were disappointed beyond measure when the plebeian drunks decided to take it as a joke. They played Red Dog in twenty-one and Jackpot from dinner to dawn, and on the occasion of one man's birthday persuaded him to buy sufficient champagne for a hilarious celebration. The donor of the party, having remained sober, Carrie and Amory accidentally dropped him down two flights of stairs, and called, shamefaced and penitent, at the infirmary all the following week. "'Say, who are all these women?' demanded Carrie one day, protesting at the size of Amory's mail. "'I've been looking at the postmarks lately. Farmington and Dobbs and Westover and Dana Hall. What's the idea?' Amory grinned. All from the Twin Cities. He named them off. There's Marilyn DeWitt. She's pretty. Got a car of her own, and that's damn convenient. There's Sally Weatherby. She's getting too fat. There's Myra St. Clair. She's an old flame. Easy to kiss if you like it. What line do you throw em? demanded Carrie. I've tried everything, and the mad wags aren't even afraid of me. You're the nice boy type, suggested Amory. That's just it. Mother always feels the girl is safe if she's with me. Honestly, it's annoying. If I start to hold somebody's hand, they laugh at me, and let me, just as if I wasn't part of them. As soon as I get hold of a hand, they sort of disconnect it from the rest of them." Sulk, suggested Amory. Tell them you're wild, and have them reform you. Go home furious. Come back in half an hour. Startle them. Carry shook his head. No chance. I wrote a St. Timothy girl a really loving letter last year. In one place I got rattled and said, My God, how I love you! She took a nail-scissors, clipped out the My God, and showed the rest of the letter all over school. Doesn't work at all. I'm just good old Carrie and all that rot. Amory smiled and tried to picture himself as good old Amory. He failed completely. February dripped snow and rain, the cyclonic freshman mid-years passed, and life in Twelve Univay continued interesting if not purposeful. Once a day Amory indulged in a club sandwich, cornflakes, and julienne potatoes at Joe's, accompanied usually by Carrie or Alec Connage. The latter was a quiet, rather aloof slicker from Hotchkiss, who lived next door and shared the same enforced singleness as Amory due to the fact that his entire class had gone to Yale. Joe's was unesthetic and faintly unsanitary, but a limitless charge account could be opened there, a convenience that Amory appreciated. His father had been experimenting with mining stocks, and, in consequence, his allowance, while liberal, was not at all what he had expected. Joe's had the additional advantage of seclusion from curious upper-class eyes. So at four each afternoon Amory, accompanied by friend or book, went up to experiment with his digestion. One day in March, finding that all the tables were occupied, he slipped into a chair opposite a freshman who bent intently over a book at the last table. They nodded briefly. For twenty minutes Amory sat consuming bacon buns and reading Mrs. Warren's Profession. He had discovered Shaw quite by accident while browsing in the library during mid-years. The other freshman, also intent on his volume, 
meanwhile did away with a trio of chocolate-malted milks. By and by Amory's eyes wandered curiously to his fellow luncher's book. He spelled out the name and title upside down, Marpessa by Stephen Phillips. This meant nothing to him, his metrical education having been confined to such Sunday classics as Come into the Garden Maud, and what morsels of Shakespeare and Milton had been recently forced upon him. Moved to address his vis-a-vis, he simulated interest in his book for a moment, and then exclaimed aloud as if involuntarily, Ha! Great stuff! The other freshman looked up, and Amory registered artificial embarrassment. Are you referring to your bacon buns? His cracked, kindly voice went well with the large spectacles, and the impression of a voluminous keenness that he gave. No, Amory answered. I was referring to Bernard Shaw. He turned the book around in explanation. I've never read any Shaw. I've always meant to. The boy paused and then continued. Did you ever read Stephen Phillips, or, or do you like poetry? Yes, indeed, Amory affirmed eagerly. I've never read much of Phillips, though. He had never heard of any Phillips, except the late David Graham. It's pretty fair, I think. Of course, he's a Victorian. They sallied into a discussion of poetry, in the course of which they introduced themselves, and Amory's companion proved to be none other than that awful highbrow, Thomas Park d'Invilliers, who signed the passionate love-poems in the lit. He was perhaps nineteen, with stooped shoulders, pale blue eyes, and, as Amory could tell from his general appearance, without much conception of social competition and such phenomena of absorbing interest. Still, he liked books, and it seemed forever since Amory had met any one who did, if only that St. Paul's crowd at the next table would not mistake him for a bird, too, he would enjoy the encounter tremendously. They didn't seem to be noticing, so he let himself go, discussed books by the dozens, books he had read, read about, books he had never heard of, rattling off lists of titles with the facility of a Brentano's clerk. Donfilier was partially taken in and wholly delighted. In a good-natured way he had almost decided that Princeton was one part deadly Philistines and one part deadly grinds, and to find a person who could mention Keats without stammering, yet evidently washed his hands, was rather a treat. "'Ever read any Oscar Wilde?' he asked. "'No. Who wrote it?' "'It's a man, don't you know?' "'Oh, surely.' A faint chord was struck in Amory's memory. "'Wasn't the comic opera Patience written about him?' "'Yes, that's the fellow. I've just finished a book of his, The Picture of Dorian Gray, and I certainly wish you'd read it. You'd like it. You can borrow it if you want to.' "'Why, I'd like it a lot. Thanks. Don't you want to come up to the room? I've got a few other books.' Amory hesitated, glanced at the St. Paul's group. One of them was the magnificent, exquisite Humbird, and he considered how determinate the addition of this friend would be. He never got to the stage of making them and getting rid of them. He was not hard enough for that. So he measured Thomas Park d'Anvilliers' undoubted attractions and value against the menace of cold eyes behind tortoise-rimmed spectacles that he fancied glared from the next table. "'Yes, I'll go.' 
So he found Dorian Gray, and the mystic and sombre Dolores, and the belle dame sans merci. For a month was keen on naught else. The world became pale and interesting, and he tried hard to look at Princeton through the satiated eyes of Oscar Wilde and Swinburne, or Fingolo Flatterdy, and Algernon Charles, as he called them in Pursieux's jest. He read enormously every night, Shaw, Chesterton, Barry, Panero, Yeats, Singe, Ernest Dowson, Arthur Simons, Keats, Suderman, Robert Hugh Benson, the Savoy Operas, just a heterogeneous mixture, for he suddenly discovered that he had read nothing for years. Tom Donvilliers became at first an occasion rather than a friend. Amory saw him about once a week, and together they gilded the ceiling of Tom's room and decorated the walls with imitation tapestry bought at an auction, tall candlesticks and figured curtains. Amory liked him for being clever and literary without effeminacy or affectation. In fact, Amory did most of the strutting, and tried painfully to make every remark an epigram, than which, if one is content with ostensible epigrams, there are many feats harder. Twelve Univet was amused. Carrie read Dorian Gray and simulated Lord Henry, following Amory about, addressing him as Dorian, and pretending to encourage in him wicked fancies and attenuated tendencies to ennui. When he carried it into commons, to the amazement of the others at table, Amory became furiously embarrassed, and after that made epigrams only before Donvilliers or a convenient mirror. One day Tom and Amory tried reciting their own and Lord Dunsany's poems to the music of Carey's gramophone. "'Chant!' cried Tom. "'Don't recite! Chant!' Amory, who was performing, looked annoyed, and claimed that he needed a record with less piano in it. Carrie thereupon rolled on the floor in stifled laughter. "'Put on hearts and flowers!' he howled. "'Oh, my Lord, I'm going to cast a kitten!' "'Shut off the damn gramophone!' Amory cried, rather red in the face. "'I'm not giving an exhibition!' In the meanwhile Amory delicately kept trying to awaken a sense of the social system in Donvilliers, for he knew that this poet was really more conventional than he, and needed merely watered hair, a smaller range of conversation, and a darker brown hat to become quite regular. But the liturgy of Livingstone collars and dark ties fell on heedless ears. In fact, Donvilliers faintly resented his efforts, so Amory confined himself to calls once a week, and brought him occasionally to twelve univet. This caused mild titters among the other freshmen, who called them Dr. Johnson and Boswell. Alec Connage, another frequent visitor, liked him in a vague way, but was afraid of him as a highbrow. Carey, who saw through his poetic patter to the solid, almost respectable depths within, was immensely amused, and would have him recite poetry by the hour, while he lay with closed eyes on Amory's sofa and listened. Asleep? or waking is it, for her neck kissed over close, wears yet a purple speck wherein the pained blood falters and goes out, soft, and stung softly, fairer for a fleck. That's good, Carrie would say softly. It pleases the elder holiday. That's a great poet, I guess. Tom, delighted at an audience, would ramble through the poems and ballads, until Carrie and Amory knew them almost as well as he. 
Amory took to writing poetry on spring afternoons, in the gardens of the big estates near Princeton, while swans made effective atmosphere in the artificial pools, and slow clouds sailed harmoniously above the willows. May came too soon, and suddenly unable to bear walls, he wandered the campus at all hours through starlight and rain. End of Part 1 Chapter 2Chapter Two, Part Two, of This Side of Paradise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Chapter Two, Part Two. A DAMP SYMBOLIC INTERLUDE The night mist fell. From the moon it rolled, clustered about the spires and towers, and then settled below them, so that the dreaming peaks were still in lofty aspiration toward the sky. Figures that dotted the day like ants now brushed along as shadowy ghosts, in and out of the foreground. The Gothic halls and cloisters were infinitely more mysterious as they loomed suddenly out of the darkness, outlined each by myriad faint squares of yellow light. Indefinitely from somewhere a bell boomed the quarter-hour, and Amory, pausing by the sundial, stretched himself out full length on the damp grass. The cool bathed his eyes and slowed the flight of time, time that had crept so insidiously through the lazy April afternoons, seemed so intangible in the long spring twilights. Evening after evening the senior singing had drifted over the campus in melancholy beauty, and through the shell of his undergraduate consciousness had broken a deep and reverent devotion to the grey walls and Gothic peaks, and all they symbolized as warehouses of dead ages. The tower that in view of his window sprang upward, grew into a spire, yearning higher until its uppermost tip was half invisible against the morning skies gave him the first sense of the transiency and unimportance of the campus figures, except as holders of the apostolic succession. He liked knowing that Gothic architecture, with its upward trend, was peculiarly appropriate to universities, and the idea became personal to him. The silent stretches of green, the quiet halls with an occasional light-burning scholastic light, held his imagination in a strong grasp and the chastity of the spire became a symbol of this perception. "'Damn it all!' he whispered aloud, wetting his hands in the damp and running them through his hair. "'Next year I work.' Yet he knew that where now the spirit of spires and towers made him dreamily acquiescent, it would then overawe him. Where now he realized only his own inconsequence, effort would make him aware of his own impotency and insufficiency. The college dreamed on, awake. He felt a nervous excitement that might have been the very throb of its slow heart. It was a stream where he was to throw a stone, whose faint ripple would be vanishing almost as it left his hand. As yet he had given nothing, he had taken nothing. A belated freshman, his oilskin slicker rasping loudly, slushed along the soft path. 
a voice from somewhere called the inevitable formula, "'Stick out your head!' below an unseen window. A hundred little sounds of the current drifting on under the fog pressed in finally on his consciousness. "'Oh, God!' he cried suddenly, and started at the sound of his voice in the stillness. The rain dripped on. A minute longer he lay without moving, his hands clenched. Then he sprang to his feet and gave his clothes a tentative pat. "'I'm very damn wet!' he said aloud to the sundial. Historical The war began in the summer following his freshman year. Beyond a sporting interest in the German dash for Paris, the whole affair failed either to thrill or interest him. With the attitude he might have held toward an amusing melodrama, he hoped it would be long and bloody. If it had not continued he would have felt like an irate ticket-holder at a prize-fight, where the principals refused to mix it up. That was his total reaction. HA-HA HORTENSE All right, ponies. Shake it up. Hey, ponies, how about easing up on that crap game and shaking a mean hip? Hey, ponies! The coach fumed helplessly. The Triangle Club president, glowering with anxiety, varied between furious bursts of authority and fits of temperamental lassitude, when he sat spiritless and wondered how the devil the show was ever going on tour by Christmas. All right, we'll take the pirate song. The ponies took last drags at their cigarettes and slumped into place. The leading lady rushed into the foreground, setting his hands and feet in an atmospheric mince, and as the coach clapped and stamped and tumped and tadad, they hashed out a dance. A great seething anthill was the Triangle Club. It gave a musical comedy every year, travelling with cast, chorus, orchestra, and scenery all through the Christmas vacation. The play and music were the work of undergraduates, and the club itself was the most influential of institutions, over three hundred men competing for it every year. Emery, after an easy victory in the first sophomore Princetonian competition, stepped into a vacancy of the cast as Boiling Oil, a pirate lieutenant. Every night for the last week they had rehearsed Ha-Ha Hortense in the casino, from two in the afternoon until eight in the morning sustained by dark and powerful coffee, and sleeping in lectures through the interim. A rare scene, the casino, a big barn-like auditorium, dotted with boys as girls, boys as pirates, boys as babies, the scenery and chorus of being violently set up, the spotlight man rehearsing by throwing weird shafts into angry eyes, overall the constant tuning of the orchestra, or the cheerful tumpty-tump of a triangle tune. The boy who writes the lyrics stands in the corner, biting a pencil, with twenty minutes to think of an encore. The business manager argues with his secretary as to how much money can be spent on those damn milkmaid costumes. The old graduate, president in ninety-eight, perches on a box and thinks how much simpler it was in his day. How a triangle show ever got off was a mystery, but it was a riotous mystery, anyway. Whether or not one did enough service to wear a little gold triangle on his watch-chain. Ha-ha Hortense was written over six times, and had the names of nine collaborators on the program. All triangle shows started by being something different, not just a regular musical comedy. 
but when the several authors, the President, the coach, and the faculty committee finished with it, there remained just the old reliable triangle show, with the old reliable jokes and the star comedian who got expelled or sick or something just before the trip, and the dark-whiskered man in the pony ballet, who absolutely won't shave twice a day, doggone it. There was one brilliant place in ha-ha or tense. It is a Princeton tradition that whenever a Yale man who is a member of the widely advertised Skull and Bones hears the sacred name mentioned, he must leave the room. It is also a tradition that the members are invariably successful in later life, amassing fortunes or votes or coupons or whatever they choose to amass. Therefore, at each performance of Ha-Ha Hortense, half a dozen seats were kept from sale and occupied by six of the worst-looking vagabonds that could be hired from the streets, further touched up by the triangle make-up man. At the moment in the show where Firebrand, the pirate chief, pointed at his black flag and said, I am a Yale graduate, note my skull and bones. At this very moment the six vagabonds were instructed to rise conspicuously, and leave the theatre with looks of deep melancholy and an injured dignity. It was claimed, though never proved, that on one occasion the hired alists were swelled by one of the real thing. They played through vacation to the fashionable of eight cities. Amory liked Louisville and Memphis best. These knew how to meet strangers, furnished extraordinary punch, and flaunted an astonishing array of feminine beauty. Chicago he approved for a certain verve that transcended its loud accent. However, it was a Yale town, and as the Yale Glee Club was expected in a week, the triangle received only divided homage. In Baltimore, Princeton was at home, and every one fell in love. There was a proper consumption of strong waters all along the line. One man invariably went on the stage highly stimulated, claiming that his particular interpretation of the part required it. There were three private cars. However, no one slept except in the third car, which was called the Animal Car, and where were herded the spectacled windjammers of the orchestra. Everything was so hurried that there was no time to be bored, but when they arrived in Philadelphia, with vacation nearly over, there was rest in getting out of the heavy atmosphere of flowers and grease paint, and the ponies took off their corsets with abdominal pains and sighs of relief. When the disbanding came, Amory set out post-haste for Minneapolis, for Sally Weatherby's cousin, Isabel Borge, was coming to spend the winter in Minneapolis while her parents went abroad. He remembered Isabel only as a little girl with whom he had played sometimes when he first went to Minneapolis. She had gone to Baltimore to live, but since then she had developed a past. Amory was in full stride, confident, nervous, and jubilant scurrying back to Minneapolis to see a girl he had known as a child, seemed the interesting and romantic thing to do. So without compunction he wired his mother not to expect him, sat in the train, and thought about himself for thirty-six hours. Petting On the triangle trip Amory had come into constant contact with that great current American phenomenon, the petting party. None of the Victorian mothers, and most of the mothers were Victorian, had any idea how casually their daughters were accustomed to be kissed. "'Servant girls are that way,' says Mrs. Huston Carmelite to her popular daughter. 
They are kissed first and proposed to afterward. But the popular daughter becomes engaged every six months between sixteen and twenty-two, when she arranges a match with young Hamble, of Campbell and Hamble, who fatuously considers himself her first love, and between engagements the P.D. She is selected by the cut-in system at dances, which favours the survival of the fittest, has other sentimental last kisses in the moonlight, or the firelight, or the outer darkness. Amory saw girls doing things that even in his memory would have been impossible, eating three o'clock, after dance suppers in impossible cafés, talking of every side of life with an air half of earnestness, half of mockery, yet with a furtive excitement that Amory considered stood for a real moral letdown. But he never realized how widespread it was until he saw the cities between New York and Chicago as one vast juvenile intrigue. Afternoon at the plaza, with winter twilight hovering outside and faint drums downstairs, they strut and fret in the lobby, taking another cocktail, scrupulously attiring and waiting. Then the swinging doors revolve and three bundles of fur mince in. The theatre comes afterward, then a table at the midnight frolic. Of course Mother will be along there, but she will serve only to make things more secretive and brilliant as she sits in solitary state at the deserted table, and thinks such entertainments as this are not half so bad as they are painted, only rather wearying. But the P.D. is in love again. It was odd, wasn't it, that though there was so much room left in the taxi, the P.D. and the boy from Williams were somehow crowded out and had to go in a separate car. Odd! Didn't you notice how flushed the P.D. was when she arrived just seven minutes late? But the P.D. gets away with it. The bell had become the flirt. The flirt had become the baby vamp. The bell had five or six callers every afternoon. If the P.D., by some strange accident, has two, it is made pretty uncomfortable for the one who hasn't a date with her. The bell was surrounded by a dozen men in the intermissions between dances. Try to find the P.D. between dances. Just try to find her. The same girl, deep in an atmosphere of jungle music and the questioning of moral codes. Amory found it rather fascinating to feel that any popular girl he met before eight he might possibly kiss before twelve. "'Why on earth are we here?' he asked the girl with the green combs one night as they sat in someone's limousine outside the country club in Louisville. "'I don't know. I'm just full of the devil.' "'Let's be frank. We'll never see each other again. I wanted to come out here with you because I thought you were the best-looking girl in sight. You really don't care whether you ever see me again, do you?' "'No. But is this your line for every girl? What have I done to deserve it?' And you didn't feel tired dancing, or want a cigarette, or any of the things you said? You just wanted to be—oh, let's go in," she interrupted. If you want to analyze, let's not talk about it. When the hand-knit, sleeveless jerseys were stylish, Amory, in a burst of inspiration, named them petting shirts. The name travelled from coast to coast on the lips of parlour snakes and P.D.'s. Descriptive. Amory was now eighteen years old, just under six feet tall, and exceptionally, but not conventionally, handsome. 
he had rather a young face, the ingenuousness of which was marred by the penetrating green eyes, fringed with long, dark eyelashes. He lacked somehow that intense animal magnetism that so often accompanies beauty in men or women. His personality seemed rather a mental thing, and it was not in his power to turn it on and off like a water-faucet. But people never forgot his face. Isabel she paused at the top of the staircase. The sensations attributed to divers on springboards, leading ladies on opening nights, and lumpy, husky young men on the day of the big game, crowded through her. She should have descended to a burst of drums or a discordant blend of themes from Thais and Carmen. She had never been so curious about her appearance, she had never been so satisfied with it. She had been sixteen years old for six months. "'Isabel!' called her cousin Sally from the doorway of the dressing-room. "'I'm ready.' She caught a slight lump of nervousness in her throat. "'I had to send back to the house for another pair of slippers. It'll be just a minute.' Isabel started toward the dressing-room for a last peek in the mirror, but something decided her to stand there and gaze down the broad stairs of the Minnehaha Club. They curved tantalizingly and she could catch just a glimpse of two pairs of masculine feet in the hall below. Pump-shod in uniform black, they gave no hint of identity, but she wondered eagerly if one pair were attached to Amory Blaine. This young man, not as yet encountered, had nevertheless taken up a considerable part of her day, the first day of her arrival. Coming up in the machine from the station, Sally had volunteered, amid a rain of question, comment, Revelation and Exaggeration "'You remember Amory Blaine, of course. Well, he's simply mad to see you again. He stayed over a day from college, and he's coming to-night. He's heard so much about you. Says he remembers your eyes.' This had pleased Isabel. It put them on equal terms, although she was quite capable of staging her own romances, with or without advance advertising. But following her happy tremble of anticipation came a sinking sensation that made her ask, "'How do you mean he's heard about me? What sort of things?' Sally smiled. She felt rather in the capacity of a showman with her more exotic cousin. "'He knows you're—you're you're considered beautiful and all that,' she paused. "'And I guess he knows you've been kissed.' At this Isabel's little fist had clinched suddenly under the fur robe. She was accustomed to be thus followed by her desperate past, and it never failed to rouse in her the same feeling of resentment. Yet, in a strange town, it was an advantageous reputation. She was a speed, was she? Well, let them find out. Out of the window Isabel watched the snow glide by in the frosty morning. It was ever so much colder here than in Baltimore. She had not remembered. The glass of the side door was iced. The windows were shirred with snow in the corners. Her mind played still with one subject. Did he dress like that boy there, who walked calmly down a bustling business street in moccasins and winter carnival costume? How very western! Of course he wasn't that way. He went to Princeton was a sophomore or something. Really, she had no distinct idea of him. 
An ancient snapshot she had preserved in an old Kodak book had impressed her by the big eyes, which she had probably grown up to by now. However, in the last month, when her winter visit to Sally had been decided on, he had assumed the proportions of a worthy adversary. Children, most astute of matchmakers, plot their campaigns quickly, and Sally had played a clever correspondence sonata to Isabel's excitable temperament. Isabel had been for some time capable of very strong, if very transient, emotions. They drew up at a spreading, white stone building, set back from the snowy street. Mrs. Weatherby greeted her warmly, and her various younger cousins were produced from the corners where they skulked politely. Isabel met them tactfully. At her best she allied all with whom she came in contact, except older girls and some women. All the impressions she made were conscious. The half-dozen girls she renewed acquaintance with that morning were all rather impressed, and as much by her direct personality as by her reputation. Amory Blaine was an open subject, evidently a bit light of love, neither popular nor unpopular. Every girl there seemed to have had an affair with him at some time or other, but no one volunteered any really useful information. He was going to fall for her. Sally had published that information to her young set, and they were retailing it back to Sally as fast as they set eyes on Isabel. Isabel resolved secretly that she would, if necessary, force herself to like him. She owed it to Sally. Suppose she were terribly disappointed. Sally had painted him in such glowing colours. He was good-looking, sort of distinguished when he wants to be, had a line, and was properly inconstant. In fact, he summed up all the romance that her age and environment led her to desire. She wondered if those were his dancing shoes that Fox trotted tentatively around the soft rug below. All impressions, and in fact all ideas, were extremely kaleidoscopic to Isabel. She had that curious mixture of the social and the artistic temperaments found often in two classes, society women and actresses. Her education, or rather her sophistication, had been absorbed from the boys who had dangled on her favour. Her tact was instinctive, and her capacity for love affairs was limited only by the number of the susceptible within telephone distance. Flirts smiled from her large black-brown eyes, and shone through her intense physical magnetism. So she waited at the head of the stairs that evening while slippers were fetched. Just as she was growing impatient, Sally came out of the dressing-room, beaming with her accustomed good nature and high spirits and together they descended to the floor below, while the shifting searchlight of Isabel's mind flashed on two ideas. She was glad she had high colour to-night, and she wondered if he danced well. Downstairs, in the club's great room, she was surrounded for a moment by the girls she had met in the afternoon, then she heard Sally's voice repeating a cycle of names, and found herself bowing to a sextet of black and white, terribly stiff vaguely familiar figures. The name Blaine figured somewhere, but at first she could not place him. A very confused, very juvenile moment of awkward backings and bumpings followed, and every one found himself talking to the person he least desired to. Isabel maneuvered herself and Froggy Parker, freshman at Harvard, with whom she had once played hopscotch, to a seat on the stairs. 
A humorous reference to the past was all she needed. The things Isabel could do socially with one idea were remarkable. First she repeated it rapturously to an enthusiastic contralto with a soupçon of southern accent. Then she held it off at a distance and smiled at it, her wonderful smile. Then she delivered it in variations, and played a sort of mental catch with it, all this in the nominal form of dialogue. Froggy was fascinated and quite unconscious that this was being done, not for him, but for the green eyes that glistened under the shining, carefully watered hair, a little to her left, for Isabel had discovered Amory. As an actress, even in the fullest flush of her own conscious magnetism, gets a deep impression of most of the people in the front row, so Isabel sized up her antagonist. First he had auburn hair, and from her feeling of disappointment she knew she had expected him to be dark, and of garter advertisement slenderness. For the rest, a faint flush in a straight romantic profile, the effect set off by a close-fitting dress-suit and a silk-ruffled shirt of the kind that women still delight to see men wear, but men were just beginning to get tired of. During this inspection Amory was quietly watching. "'Don't you think so?' she said suddenly, turning to him, innocent-eyed. There was a stir, and Sally led the way over to their table. Amory struggled to Isabel's side, and whispered, "'You're my dinner-partner, you know. We're all coached for each other.' Isabel gasped. This was rather right in line. But really she felt as if a good speech had been taken from the star and given to a minor character. She mustn't lose the leadership a bit. The dinner-table glittered with laughter at the confusion of getting places, and then curious eyes were turned on her, sitting near the head. She was enjoying this immensely, and Froggy Parker was so engrossed with the added sparkle of her rising colour that he forgot to pull out Sally's chair and fell into a dim confusion. Amory was on the other side, full of confidence and vanity, gazing at her in open admiration. He began directly, and so did Froggy. "'I've heard a lot about you since you wore braids.' "'Wasn't it funny this afternoon?' Both stopped. Isabel turned to Amory shyly. Her face was always enough answer for anyone, but she decided to speak. How? From whom? From everybody, for all the years since you've been away. She blushed appropriately. On her right Froggy was hors de combat already, although he hadn't quite realized it. I'll tell you what I remembered about you all these years, Amory continued. She leaned slightly toward him and looked modestly at the celery before her. Froggy sighed. He knew Amory, and the situations that Amory seemed born to handle. He turned to Sally and asked her if she was going away to school next year. Amory opened with grape-shot. "'I've got an adjective that just fits you.' This was one of his favourite starts. He seldom had a word in mind, but it was a curiosity-provoker, and he could always produce something complimentary if he got in a tight corner. "'Oh! What?' Isabel's face was a study in enraptured curiosity. Amory shook his head. "'I don't know you very well yet.' "'Will you tell me afterward?' she half-whispered. He nodded. "'We'll sit out.' Isabel nodded. 
"'Did anyone ever tell you? You have keen eyes,' she said. Amory attempted to make them look even keener. He fancied, but he was not sure, that her foot had just touched his under the table, but it might possibly have been only the table-leg. It was so hard to tell. Still it thrilled him. He wondered quickly if there would be any difficulty in securing the little den upstairs. Babes in the Woods Isabel and Amory were distinctly not innocent, nor were they particularly brazen. Moreover, amateur standing had very little value in the game they were playing, a game that would presumably be her principal study for years to come. She had begun as he had, with good looks and an excitable temperament, and the rest was the result of accessible popular novels and dressing-room conversation culled from a slightly older set. Isabel had walked with an artificial gait at nine and a half, and when her eyes, wide and starry, proclaimed the ingenue most. Amory was proportionately less deceived. He waited for the mask to drop off, but at the same time he did not question her right to wear it. She, on her part, was not impressed by his studied air of blasé sophistication. She had lived in a larger city and had slightly an advantage in range but she accepted his pose. It was one of the dozen little conventions of this kind of affair. He was aware that he was getting this particular favour now because she had been coached. He knew that he stood for merely the best game in sight, and that he would have to improve his opportunity before he lost his advantage. So he proceeded with an infinite guile that would have horrified her parents. After the dinner the dance began smoothly smoothly. Boys cut in on Isabel every few feet, and then squabbled in the corners with, "'You might have let me get more than an inch,' and, "'She didn't like it either. She told me so next time I cut in.' It was true. She told everyone so, and gave her hand a parting pressure that said, "'You know that your dances are making my evening.' But time passed, two hours of it, and the less subtle bows had better learned to focus their pseudo-passionate glances elsewhere, for eleven o'clock found Isabel and Amory sitting on the couch in the little den of the reading-room upstairs. She was conscious that they were a handsome pair, and seemed to belong distinctively in this seclusion, while lesser lights fluttered and chattered downstairs. Boys who passed the door looked in enviously girls who passed only laughed and frowned and grew wise within themselves. They had now reached a very definite stage. They had traded accounts of their progress since they had met last, and she had listened to much she had heard before. He was a sophomore, was on the Princetonian board, hoped to be chairman in senior year. He learned that some of the boys she went with in Baltimore were terrible speeds, and came to dances in states of artificial stimulation and most of them were twenty or so, and drove alluring red stutzes. A good half seemed to have already flunked out of various schools and colleges, but some of them bore athletic names that made him look at her admiringly. As a matter of fact, Isabel's closer acquaintance with the universities was just commencing. She had bowing acquaintance with a lot of young men who thought she was a pretty kid worth keeping an eye on but Isabel strung the names into a fabrication of gaiety that would have dazzled a Viennese nobleman. 
such is the power of young contralto voices on sink-down sofas. He asked her if she thought he was conceited. She said there was a difference between conceit and self-confidence. She adored self-confidence in men. "'Is Froggy a good friend of yours?' she asked. "'Rather. Why?' "'He's a bum dancer,' <laughs> Amory laughed. He dances as if the girl were on his back instead of in his arms. She appreciated this. You're awfully good at sizing people up. Amory denied this painfully. However, he sized up several people for her. Then they talked about hands. You've got awfully nice hands, she said. They look as if you played the piano, do you? I have said that they reached a very definite stage. Nay, more a very critical stage. Amory had stayed over a day to see her, and his train left at twelve-eighteen that night. His trunk and suitcase awaited him at the station. His watch was beginning to hang heavy in his pocket. "'Isabel,' he said suddenly, "'I want to tell you something.' They had been talking lightly about that funny look in her eyes, and Isabel knew from the change in his manner what was coming. Indeed, she had been wondering how soon it would come. Amory reached above their heads and turned out the electric light, so that they were in the dark, except for the red glow that fell through the door from the reading-room lamps. Then he began. "'I don't know whether or not you know what you—what I'm going to say. Lordy, Isabel, this sounds like a line, but it isn't.' "'I know,' said Isabel softly. Maybe we'll never meet again like this. I have darned hard luck sometimes." He was leaning away from her on the other arm of the lounge, but she could see his eyes plainly in the dark. "'You'll meet me again, silly.' There was just the slightest emphasis on the last word, so that it became almost a term of endearment. He continued a bit huskily. "'I've fallen for a lot of people—girls. And I guess you have, too boys, I mean, but honestly, you—" He broke off suddenly and leaned forward, chin on his hands. "'Oh, what's the use? You'll go your way, and I suppose I'll go mine.' Silence for a moment. Isabel was quite stirred. She wound her handkerchief into a tight ball, and by the faint light that streamed over her, dropped it deliberately on the floor. Their hands touched for an instant, but neither spoke. Silences were becoming more frequent and more delicious. Outside another stray couple had come up and were experimenting on the piano in the next room. After the usual preliminary of chopsticks, one of them started Babes in the Woods, and a light tenor carried the words into the den. Give me your hand, I'll understand, we're off to slumberland. Isabel hummed it softly and trembled as she felt Amory's hand close over hers. "'Isabel,' he whispered, "'you know I'm mad about you. You do give a darn about me.' "'Yes.' "'How much do you care? Do you like anyone better?' "'No.' He could scarcely hear her, although he bent so near that he felt her breath against his cheek. "'Isabel.' I'm going back to college for six long months, and why shouldn't we, if I could only just have one thing to remember you by, close the door. 
Her voice had just stirred so that he half wondered whether she had spoken at all. As he swung the door softly shut, the music seemed quivering just outside. Moonlight is bright. Kiss me good night. What a wonderful song, she thought. Everything was wonderful tonight, most of all this romantic scene in the den, with her hands clinging and the inevitable looming charmingly close. The future vista of her life seemed an unending succession of scenes like this, under moonlight and pale starlight, and in the backs of warm limousines and in low cosy roadsters, stopped under sheltering trees. Only the boy might change, and this one was so nice. He took her hand softly. With a sudden movement he turned it, and holding it to his lips, kissed the palm. Isabel! His whisper blended in the music and they seemed to float nearer together. Her breath came faster. Can't I kiss you, Isabel? Isabel. Lips half parted, she turned her head to him in the dark. Suddenly the ring of voices, the sound of running footsteps surged toward them. Quick as a flash Amory reached up and turned on the light, and when the door opened and three boys, the wrathy and dance-craving froggy among them, rushed in, he was turning over the magazines on the table, while she sat without moving, serene and unembarrassed, and even greeted them with a welcoming smile. But her heart was beating wildly, and she felt somehow as if she had been deprived. It was evidently over. There was a clamour for a dance, there was a glance that passed between them, on his side despair, on hers regret, and then the evening went on with the reassured bows and the eternal cutting in. At quarter to twelve Amory shook hands with her gravely, in the midst of a small crowd assembled to wish him good speed. For an instant he lost his poise, and she felt a bit rattled when a satirical voice from a concealed wit cried, "'Take her outside, Amory!' As he took her hand he pressed it a little, and she returned the pressure as she had done to twenty hands that evening. That was all. At two o'clock, back at the Weatherby's, Sally asked her if she and Amory had had a time in the den. Isabel turned to her quietly. In her eyes was the light of the idealist, the inviolate dreamer of Joan-like dreams. "'No,' she answered. "'I don't do that sort of thing any more. He asked me to, but I said no.' As she crept in bed she wondered what he'd say in his special delivery tomorrow. He had such a good-looking mouth. Would she ever? Fourteen angels were watching over them, sang Sally sleepily from the next room. Damn! muttered Isabel, punching the pillow into a luxurious lump and exploring the cold sheets cautiously. Damn! End of this part of chapter two. Chapter Two, Part Three of This Side of Paradise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald. 
Chapter Two, Part Three. Carnival. Amory, by way of the Princetonian, had arrived. The minor snobs, finally balanced thermometers of success, warmed to him as the club elections grew nigh, and he and Tom were visited by groups of upperclassmen who arrived awkwardly, balanced on the edge of the furniture, and talked of all subjects except the one of absorbing interest. Amory was amused at the intent eyes upon him, and, in case the visitors represented some club in which he was not interested, took great pleasure in shocking them with unorthodox remarks. "'Oh, let me see,' he said one night to a flabbergasted delegation. "'What club do you represent?' With visitors from Ivy and Cottage and Tiger Inn he played the nice, unspoilt, ingenuous boy, very much at ease and quite unaware of the object of the call. When the fatal morning arrived early in March, and the campus became a document in a hysteria, he slid smoothly into Cottage with Alec Connage, and watched his suddenly neurotic class with much wonder. There were fickle groups that jumped from club to club. There were friends of two or three days who announced tearfully and wildly that they must join the same club. Nothing should separate them. There were snarling disclosures of long-hidden grudges as the suddenly prominent remembered snubs of freshman year. Unknown men were elevated into importance when they received certain coveted bids. Others who were considered all set found that they had made unexpected enemies, felt themselves stranded and deserted, talked wildly of leaving college. In his own crowd Amory saw men kept out for wearing green hats, for being a damn tailor's dummy, for having too much pull in heaven, for getting drunk one night not like a gentleman by God, or for unfathomable secret reasons known to no one but the wielders of the black balls. This orgy of sociability culminated in a gigantic party at the Nassau Inn, where punch was dispensed from immense bowls, and the whole downstairs became a delirious, circulating, shouting pattern of faces and voices. "'Hi, Debbie! Gratulations! Good boy, Tom! You got a good bunch in cap!' Say, Carrie. Oh, Carrie, I hear you went tiger with all the weightlifters. Well, I didn't go to cottage. The parlor snakes delight. They say Overton fainted when he got his ivy bid. Did he sign up the first day? Oh, no. Tore over to Murray Dodge on a bicycle. Afraid it was a mistake. How did you get into cap, you old Rue? Congratulations. Congratulations yourself. Here you got a good crowd. When the bar closed, the party broke up into groups and streamed, singing, over the snow-clad compass, in a weird delusion that snobbishness and strain were over at last, and that they could do what they pleased for the next two years. Long afterward Amory thought of sophomore spring as the happiest time of his life. His ideas were in tune with life as he found it. He wanted no more than to drift and dream, and enjoy a dozen new-found friendships through the April afternoons. Alec Connage came into his room one morning and woke him up into the sunshine and peculiar glory of Campbell Hall shining in the window. "'Wake up, original sin, and scrape yourself together. Be in front of Renwick's in half an hour. Somebody's got a car.' He took the bureau cover and carefully deposited it, with its load of small articles, upon the bed. "'Where did you get the car?' 
demanded Amory cynically. "'Sacred trust, but don't be a critical goofer, or you can't go.' "'I think I'll sleep,' Amory said calmly, resettling himself and reaching beside the bed for a cigarette. "'Sleep!' "'Why not? I've got a class at eleven-thirty. "'You damn gloom! Of course, if you don't want to go to the coast—' With a bound, Amory was out of bed, scattering the bureau cover's burden on the floor. The coast! He hadn't seen it in years, since he and his mother were on their pilgrimage. "'Who's going?' he demanded as he wriggled into his BVDs. "'Oh, Dick Humbird and Carrie Holliday and Jesse Ferrenby and—' Oh, about five or six. Speed it up, kid." In ten minutes Amory was devouring cornflakes in Renwick's, and at nine-thirty they bowled happily out of town, headed for the sands of Deal Beach. "'You see,' said Carrie, "'the car belongs down there. In fact, it was stolen from Asbury Park by persons unknown, who deserted it in Princeton and left for the West. Heartless Humburg here got permission from the City Council to deliver it. "'Anybody got any money?' suggested Ferrenby, turning around from the front seat. There was an emphatic negative chorus. "'That makes it interesting. Money? What's money? We can sell the car. Charge him salvage or something.' "'How are we going to get food?' asked Amory. "'Honestly,' answered Carey, eyeing him reprovingly, "'do you doubt Carey's ability for three short days?' Some people have lived on nothing for years at a time. Read the Boy Scout Monthly." Three days,' Amory mused, and I've got classes. "'One of the days is the Sabbath.' "'Just the same. I can only cut six more classes, with over a month and a half to go.' "'Throw him out. It's a long walk back.' "'Amory, you're running it out, if I may coin a new phrase.' Hadn't you better get some dope on yourself, Amory?" Amory subsided resignedly and drooped into a contemplation of the scenery. Swinburne seemed to fit in somehow. Oh, winter's rains and ruins are over, and all the seasons of snows and sins, the days dividing lover and lover, the light that loses, the night that wins, and time remembered and grief forgotten, and frost are slain and flowers begotten and in green underwood and cover, blossom by blossom the spring begins. The full streams feed on flower of— What's the matter, Amory? Amory's thinking about poetry, about the pretty birds and flowers. I can see it in his eye. No, I'm not, he lied. I'm thinking about the Princetonian. I ought to make up tonight, but I can telephone back, I suppose. Oh, said Carrie respectfully, these important men amory flushed and it seemed to him that ferrenby a defeated competitor winced a little of course carry was only kidding but he really mustn't mention the princetonian it was a halcyon day and as they neared the shore and the salt breezes scurried by he began to picture the ocean and long level stretches of sand and red roofs over blue sea then they hurried through the little town, and it all flashed upon his consciousness to a mighty paean of emotion. "'Oh, good Lord, look at it!' he cried. "'What?' "'Let me out quick. I haven't seen it for eight years. Oh, gentlefolks, stop the car!' "'What an odd child,' remarked Alec. 
I do believe he's a bit eccentric. The car was obligingly drawn up at a curb, and Amory ran for the boardwalk. First he realized that the sea was blue and that there was an enormous quantity of it, and then it roared and roared, really all the banalities about the ocean that one could realize, but if anyone had told him that these things were banalities, he would have gaped in wonder. "'Now we'll get lunch,' ordered Carey, wandering up with the crowd. "'Come on, Amory, tear yourself away and get practical.' "'We'll try the best hotel first, he went on, and thence and so forth. They strolled along the boardwalk to the most imposing hostelry in sight, and, entering the dining-room, scattered about a table. Eight Bronxes, commanded Alec, and a club sandwich and julienne's. The food for one, hand the rest around. Amory ate little, having seized a chair where he could watch the sea and feel the rock of it. When luncheon was over they sat and smoked quietly. What's the bill? Someone scanned it. Eight twenty-five. Rotten overcharge. We'll give them two dollars and one for the waiter. Carry collect the small change. The waiter approached, and Carey gravely handed him a dollar, tossed two dollars on the check, and turned away. They sauntered leisurely toward the door, pursued in a moment by the suspicious Ganymede. "'Some mistake, sir!' Carey took the bill and examined it critically. "'No mistake,' he said, shaking his head gravely, and tearing it into four pieces he handed the scraps to the waiter, who was so dumbfounded that he stood motionless and expressionless while they walked out. "'Won't he send after us?' "'No,' said Carey. "'For a minute he'll think we're the proprietor's sons or something. Then he'll look at the check again and call the manager, and in the meantime—' They left the car at Asbury and streetcarred to Allenhurst, where they investigated the crowded pavilions for beauty. At four there were refreshments in a lunchroom, and this time they paid an even smaller percent on the total cost— Something about the appearance and savoir-faire of the crowd made the thing go, and they were not pursued. "'You see, Amory, we're Marxian socialists,' explained Carey. "'We don't believe in property, and we're putting it to the great test.' "'Night will descend,' Amory suggested. "'Watch and put your trust in holiday.' They became jovial about five-thirty, and— linking arms, strolled up and down the boardwalk in a row, chanting a monotonous ditty about the sad sea-waves. Then Carey saw a face in the crowd that attracted him, and, rushing off, reappeared in a moment with one of the homeliest girls Amory had ever set eyes on. Her pale mouth extended from ear to ear, her teeth projected in a solid wedge, and she had little squinty eyes that peeped ingratiatingly over the side-sweep of her nose. Carey presented them formally. Name of Kaluka, Hawaiian Queen. Let me present Messieurs Connage, Sloane, Humbird, Farrenby, and Blaine. The girl bobbed courtesies all around. Poor creature! Amory supposed she had never before been noticed in her life. Possibly she was half-witted. While she accompanied them, Carrie had invited her to supper, she said nothing which could discountenance such a belief. She prefers her native dishes, said Alec gravely to the waiter, but any coarse food will do. All through supper he addressed her in the most respectful language, while Carrie made idiotic love to her on the other side, 
and she giggled and grinned. Amory was content to sit and watch the by-play, thinking what a light touch Carrie had, and how he could transform the barest incident into a thing of curve and contour. They all seemed to have the spirit of it, more or less, and it was a relaxation to be with them. Amory usually liked men individually, yet feared them in crowds unless the crowd was around him. He wondered how much each one contributed to the party, for there was somewhat of a spiritual tax levied. Alec and Carrie were the life of it, but not quite the centre. Somehow the quiet Homburg, and Sloane, with his impatient superciliousness, were the centre. Dick Humbird had, ever since freshman year, seemed to Amory a perfect type of aristocrat. He was slender but well-built, black curly hair, straight features, and rather a dark skin. Everything he said sounded intangibly appropriate. He possessed infinite courage, an averagely good mind, and a sense of honour with a clear charm and noblesse oblige that varied it from righteousness. He could dissipate without going to pieces, and even his most bohemian adventures never seemed running it out. People dressed like him, tried to talk as he did. Amory decided that he probably held the world back, but he wouldn't have changed him. He differed from the healthy type that was essentially middle class. He never seemed to perspire. Some people couldn't be familiar with a chauffeur without having it returned. Humburg could have lunched at Sherry's with a colored man, yet people would have somehow known that it was all right. He was not a snob, though he knew only half his class. His friends ranged from the highest to the lowest, but it was impossible to cultivate him. Servants worshipped him, and treated him like a god. He seemed the eternal example of what the upper class tries to be. He's like those pictures in the illustrated London news of the English officers who have been killed," Amory had said to Alec. Well, Alec had answered, if you want to know the shocking truth, his father was a grocery clerk who made a fortune in Tacoma real estate and came to New York ten years ago. Amory had felt a curious sinking sensation. This present type of party was made possible by the surging together of the class after club elections as if to make a last desperate attempt to know itself, to keep together, to fight off the tightening spirit of the clubs. It was a let-down from the conventional heights they had all walked so rigidly. After supper they saw Kaluka to the boardwalk, and then strolled back along the beach to Asbury. The evening sea was a new sensation, for all its colour and mellow age was gone, and it seemed the bleak waste that made the Norse sagas sad. Amory thought of Kipling's Beaches of Lucanon before the sealers came. It was still a music, though infinitely sorrowful. Ten o'clock found them penniless. They had suffered greatly on their last eleven cents, and, singing, strolled up through the casinos and lighted arches on the boardwalk, stopped to listen approvingly to all band concerts. In one place Carey took up a collection for the French war orphans which netted a dollar and twenty cents, and with this they bought some brandy in case they caught cold in the night. They finished the day in a moving picture show, and went into solemn systematic roars of laughter at an ancient comedy, to the startled annoyance of the rest of the audience. 
Their entrance was distinctly strategic, for each man as he entered pointed reproachfully at the one just behind him. Sloane, bringing up the rear, disclaimed all knowledge and responsibility as soon as the others were scattered inside. Then as the irate ticket-taker rushed in he followed nonchalantly. They reassembled later by the casino and made arrangements for the night. Carey wormed permission from the watchman to sleep on the platform, and, having collected a huge pile of rugs from the booths to serve as mattresses and blankets, they talked until midnight, and then fell into a dreamless sleep, though Amory tried hard to stay awake and watch that marvellous moon settle on the sea. So they progressed for two happy days, up and down the shore by streetcar or machine, or by shoe-leather on the crowded boardwalk sometimes eating with the wealthy, more frequently dining frugally at the expense of some unsuspecting restaurateur. They had their photos taken, eight poses, in a quick development store. Carrie insisted on grouping them as a varsity football team, and then as a tough gang from the east side with their coats inside out, and himself sitting in the middle on a cardboard moon. The photographer probably has them yet. At least they never called for them. The weather was perfect, and again they slept outside, and again Amory fell unwillingly asleep. Sunday broke solid and respectable, and even the sea seemed to mumble and complain, so they returned to Princeton via the fords of transient farmers, and broke up with colds in their heads, but otherwise none the worse for wandering. Even more than in the year before Amory neglected his work not deliberately but lazily and through a multitude of other interests coordinate geometry and the melancholy hexameters of cornea and racine held forth small allurements and even psychology which he had eagerly awaited proved to be a dull subject full of muscular reactions and biological phrases rather than the study of personality and influence that was a noon class and it always sent him dozing having found that subjective and objective sir answered most of the questions he used the phrase on all occasions and it became the class joke when on a query being levelled at him he was nudged awake by ferriby or sloane to gasp it out mostly there were parties the orange or the shore more rarely to new york and philadelphia though one night they marshalled fourteen waitresses out of childs and took them to ride down fifth avenue on top of an autobus they all cut more classes than were allowed, which meant an additional course the following year. But spring was too rare to let anything interfere with their colorful ramblings. In May Amory was elected to the sophomore prom committee, and when after a long evening's discussion with Alec they made out a tentative list of class probabilities for the senior council, they placed themselves among the surest. The senior council was composed presumably of the eighteen most representative seniors, and in view of Alec's football managership and Amory's chance of nosing out Burn Holiday as Princetonian chairman, they seemed fairly justified in this presumption. Oddly enough, they both placed Donvilliers as among the possibilities, a guess that a year before the class would have gasped at. All through the spring Amory had kept up an intermittent correspondence with Isabel Bourges, punctuated by violent squabbles and chiefly enlivened by his attempts to find new words for love. He discovered Isabel to be discreetly and aggravatingly unsentimental in letters, 
but he hoped against hope that she would prove not too exotic a bloom to fit the large spaces of spring as she had fitted the den in the Minnehaha Club. During May he wrote thirty-page documents almost nightly, and sent them to her in bulky envelopes exteriorly labelled Part One and Part Two. "'Oh, Alec, I believe I'm tired of college,' he said sadly, as they walked the dust together. "'I think I am, too, in a way. All I'd like would be a little home in the country, some warm country, and a wife, and just enough to do to keep from rotting.' "'Me, too.' "'I'd like to quit.' "'What does your girl say?' "'Oh!' Emery gasped in horror. "'She wouldn't think of marrying, that is, not now. I mean the future, you know.' "'My girl would. I'm engaged.' "'Are you really?' "'Yes. Don't say a word to anybody, please. But I am. I may not come back next year.' "'But you're only twenty. Give up college?' "'Why, Amory, you were saying a minute ago—' "'Yes,' Amory interrupted. "'But I was just wishing. I wouldn't think of leaving college. It's just that I feel so sad these wonderful nights. I sort of feel they're never coming again, and I'm not really getting all I could out of them. I wish my girl lived here. But Mary—' not a chance, especially as father says the money isn't forthcoming as it used to be. "'What a waste these nights are,' agreed Alec. But Amory sighed and made use of the nights. He had a snapshot of Isabel, enshrined in an old watch, and at eight almost every night he would turn off all the lights except the desk-lamp, and, sitting by the open windows with the picture before him, write her rapturous letters. Oh, it's so hard to write you what I really feel when I think about you so much. You've gotten to mean to me a dream that I can't put on paper any more. Your last letter came, and it was wonderful. I read it over about six times, especially the last part. But I do wish sometimes you'd be more frank and tell me what you really do think of me. Yet your last letter was too good to be true, and I can hardly wait until June. Be sure and be able to come to the prom. It'll be fine, I think, and I want to bring you just at the end of a wonderful year. I often think over what you said on that night, and wonder how much you meant. If it were anyone but you. But you see, I thought you were fickle the first time I saw you, and you are so popular in everything that I can't imagine you really liking me best. Oh, Isabel, dear, it's a wonderful night. Somebody is playing Love Moon on a mandolin far across the campus, and the music seems to bring you into the window. Now he's playing Goodbye, Boys, I'm Through, and how well it suits me. For I am through with everything. I have decided never to take a cocktail again, and I know I'll never again fall in love. I couldn't. You've been too much a part of my days and nights to ever let me think of another girl. I meet them all the time, and they don't interest me. I'm not pretending to be blasé, because it's not that. It's just that I'm in love. Oh, dearest Isabel, sometimes I can't call you just Isabel, and I'm afraid it'll come out with the dearest before your family this June. You've got to come to the prom, and then I'll come up to your house for a day, and everything will be perfect. 
and so on, in an eternal monotone that seemed to both of them infinitely charming, infinitely new. June came, and the days grew so hot and lazy that they could not worry even about exams, but spent dreamy evenings on the court of cottage, talking of long subjects until the sweep of country toward Stony Brook became a blue haze, and the lilacs were white around tennis courts, and words gave way to silent cigarettes. Then down deserted prospect and along Macash, with song everywhere around them, up to the hot joviality of Nassau Street. Tom D'Anvilliers and Amory walked late in those days. A gambling fever swept through the sophomore class, and they bent over the bones till three o'clock many a sultry night. After one session they came out of Sloane's room to find the dew fallen, and the stars old in the sky. "'Let's borrow bicycles and take a ride,' Amory suggested. "'All right. I'm not a bit tired, and this is almost the last night of the year, really, because the prom stuff starts Monday.' They found two unlocked bicycles in Holder Court, and rode out about half-past three along the Lawrenceville Road. "'What are you going to do this summer, Amory?' "'Don't ask me. Same old things, I suppose.' A month or two in Lake Geneva? I'm counting on you to be there in July, you know. Then there'll be Minneapolis, and that means hundreds of summer hops, parlor-snaking, getting bored, but—oh, Tom, he said suddenly, hasn't this year been slick? No, declared Tom emphatically, a new Tom, clothed by Brooks, shod by Franks. I've won this game, but I feel as if I never want to play another. You're all right. You're a rubber ball, and somehow it suits you. But I'm sick of adapting myself to the local snobbishness of this corner of the world. I want to go where people aren't barred because of the color of their neckties and the roll of their coats." "'You can't, Tom,' argued Amory, as they rolled along through the scattering night. "'Wherever you go now you'll always unconsciously apply these standards of having it or lacking it. For better or worse we've stamped you. You're a Princeton type." "'Well, then,' complained Tom, his cracked voice rising plaintively, "'why do I have to come back at all? I've learned all that Princeton has to offer. Two years more of mere pedantry and lying around a club aren't going to help. They're just going to disorganize me, conventionalize me completely. Even now I'm so spineless that I wonder how I get away with it.' "'Oh, but you're missing the real point, Tom,' Amory interrupted. "'You've just had your eyes open to the snobbishness of the world in a rather abrupt manner. Princeton invariably gives the thoughtful man a social sense.' "'You consider you taught me that, don't you?' he asked quizzically, eyeing Amory in the half-dark. Amory laughed quietly. "'Didn't I?' "'Sometimes,' he said slowly. I think you're my bad angel. I might have been a pretty fair poet." "'Come on, that's rather hard. You chose to come to an Eastern college. Either your eyes were open to the mean scrambling quality of people, or you'd have gone through blind, and you'd hate to have done that. Been like Marty Kay." "'Yes,' he agreed. "'You're right. I wouldn't have liked it. Still it's hard to be made a cynic at twenty. I was born one," Amory murmured. I'm a cynical idealist. 
He paused and wondered if that meant anything. They reached the sleeping school of Lawrenceville, and turned to ride back. "'It's good, this ride, isn't it?' Tom said presently. "'Yes, it's a good finish. It's knockout. Everything's good tonight. Oh, for a hot, languorous summer, and Isabel!' "'Oh, you and your Isabel. I'll bet she's a simple one. Let's say some poetry.' So Amory declaimed the ode to a nightingale to the bushes they passed. "'I'll never be a poet,' said Amory as he finished. "'I'm not enough of a sensualist, really. There are only a few obvious things that I notice as primarily beautiful. Women, spring evenings, music at night, the sea. I don't catch the subtle things like silver snarling trumpets. I may turn out an intellectual, but I'll never write anything but mediocre poetry.' They rode into Princeton as the sun was making colored maps of the sky behind the graduate school, and hurried to the refreshment of a shower that would have to serve in place of sleep. By noon the bright costume alumni crowded the streets with their bands and choruses, and in the tents there was great reunion under the orange and black banners that curled and strained in the wind. Amory looked long at one house which bore the legend, Sixty-Nine. There a few gray-haired men sat and talked quietly while the classes swept by in the panorama of life. UNDER THE ARC LIGHT Then Tragedy's emerald eyes glared suddenly at Amory over the edge of June. On the night after his ride to Lawrenceville a crowd sallied to New York in quest of adventure, and started back to Princeton about twelve o'clock in two machines. It had been a gay party, and different stages of sobriety were represented. Amory was in the car behind. They had taken the wrong road and lost the way, and so were hurrying to catch up. It was a clear night, and the exhilaration of the road went to Amory's head. He had the ghost of two stanzas of a poem forming in his mind. So the grey car crept nightward in the dark, and there was no life stirred as it went by as the still ocean paths before the shark in starred and glittering waterways, beauty high. The moon-swathed trees divided, pair on pair, while flapping nightbirds cried across the air. A moment by an inn of lamps and shades, a yellow inn under a yellow moon, then silence where crescendo laughter fades. The car swung out again to the winds of June, mellowed the shadows where the distance grew, then crushed the yellow shadows into blue. They jolted to a stop, and Amory peered up, startled. A woman was standing beside the road, talking to Alec at the wheel. Afterward he remembered the harpy effect that her old kimono gave her, and the cracked hollowness of her voice as she spoke. "'You Princeton boys?' "'Yes.' "'Well, there's one of you killed here, and two others about dead.' "'My God!' "'Look!' She pointed, and they gazed in horror. Under the full light of a roadside arc-light lay a form, face downward in a widening circle of blood. They sprang from the car. Amory thought of the back of that head, that hair, that hair, and then they turned the form over. "'It's Dick! Dick Humberg!' "'Oh, Christ! Feel his heart!' Then the insistent voice of the old crone in a sort of croaking triumph. "'He's quite dead, all right.' The car turned over. Two of the men that weren't hurt just carried the others in, but this one's no use. 
Amory rushed into the house, and the rest followed with a limp mass that they laid on the sofa in the shoddy little front parlour. Sloane, with his shoulder punctured, was on another lounge. He was half delirious, and kept calling something about a chemistry lecture at eight-ten. "'I don't know what happened,' said Ferrenby in a strained voice. "'Dick was driving, and he wouldn't give up the wheel. We told him he'd been drinking too much. Then there was this damn curve, and—' Oh, my God!" He threw himself face downward on the floor, and broke into dry sobs. The doctor had arrived, and Amory went over to the couch, where someone handed him a sheet to put over the body. With a sudden hardness he raised one of the hands and let it fall back inertly. The brow was cold, but the face not expressionless. He looked at the shoelaces. Dick had tied them that morning. He had tied them, and now he was this heavy white mass. All that remained of the charm and personality of the Dick Humbird he had known—oh, it was all so horrible and unaristocratic and close to the earth! All tragedy has that strain of the grotesque and squalid, so useless, futile, the way animals die. Amory was reminded of a cat that had lain horribly mangled in some alley of his childhood. Someone go to Princeton with Ferrenby. Amory stepped outside the door and shivered slightly at the late-night wind, a wind that stirred a broken fender on the mass of bent metal to a plaintive, tinny sound. Crescendo Next day, by a merciful chance, passed in a whirl. When Amory was by himself his thoughts zigzagged inevitably to the picture of that red mouth yawning incongruously in the white face, but with a determined effort he piled present excitement upon the memory of it and shut it coldly away from his mind. Isabel and her mother drove into town at four, and they rode up smiling Prospect Avenue, through the gay crowd, to have tea at Cottage. The clubs had their annual dinners that night so at seven he loaned her to a freshman and arranged to meet her in the gymnasium at eleven when the upperclassmen were admitted to the freshman dance she was all he had expected and he was happy and eager to make that night the centre of every dream at nine the upper classes stood in front of the clubs as the freshman torchlight parade rioted past and amory wondered if the dress-suited groups against the dark stately backgrounds and under the flare of the torches made the night as brilliant to the staring, cheering freshmen as it had been to him the year before. The next day was another whirl. They lunched in a gay party of six in a private dining-room at the club, while Isabel and Amory looked at each other tenderly over the fried chicken, and knew that their love was to be eternal. They danced away the prom until five, and the stags cut in on Isabel with joyous abandon which grew more and more enthusiastic as the hour grew late, and their wines, stored in overcoat pockets in the coat-room, made old weariness wait until another day. The stag-line is a most homogeneous mass of men. It fairly sways with a single soul. A dark-haired beauty dances by, and there is a half-gasping sound as the ripple surges forward, and someone sleeker than the rest darts out and cuts in. Then when the six-foot girl, brought by Kay in your class, and to whom he has been trying to introduce you all evening, gallops by, the line surges back, and the groups face about, and become intent on far corners of the hall, 
for K, anxious and perspiring, appears elbowing through the crowd in search of familiar faces. "'I say, old man, I've got an awfully nice—' "'Sorry, Kay, but I'm all set for this one. I've got to cut in on a fella.' "'Well, the next one?' "'What, uh, er, I swear I've got to go cut in. Look me up when she's got a dance free.' It delighted Amory when Isabel suggested that they leave for a while and drive around in her car. For a delicious hour that passed too soon, they glided the silent roads about Princeton and talked from the surface of their hearts in shy excitement. Amory felt strangely ingenuous and made no attempt to kiss her. Next day they rode up through the Jersey country, had luncheon in New York, and in the afternoon went to see a problem play at which Isabel wept all through the second act, rather to Amory's embarrassment, though it filled him with tenderness to watch her. He was tempted to lean over and kiss away her tears, and she slipped her hand into his under cover of darkness to be pressed softly. Then at six they arrived at the Borges' summer place on Long Island, and Amory rushed upstairs to change into a dinner coat. As he put in his studs he realized that he was enjoying life as he would probably never enjoy it again. Everything was hallowed by the gaze of his own youth. He had arrived, abreast of the best in his generation at Princeton. He was in love, and his love was returned. Turning on all the lights he looked at himself in the mirror trying to find in his own face the qualities that made him see clearer than the great crowd of people, that made him decide firmly, and able to influence and follow his own will. There was little in his life now that he would have changed. Oxford might have been a bigger field. Silently he admired himself. How conveniently well he looked, and how well a dinner-coat became him! He stepped into the hall and then waited at the top of the stairs, for he heard footsteps coming. It was Isabel, and from the top of her shining hair to her little golden slippers she had never seemed so beautiful. "'Isabel!' he cried, half involuntarily, and held out his arms. As in the story-books she ran into them, and on that half-minute, as their lips first touched, rested the high point of vanity, the crest of his young egotism. End of chapter Chapter 3, Part 1 of This Side of Paradise This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald Book One, Chapter Three The Egotist Considers Ouch! Let me go! He dropped his arms to his sides. What's the matter? Your shirt stud. It hurt me look she was looking down at her neck where a little blue spot about the size of a pea marred its pallor oh isabel he reproached himself i'm a goofer really i'm sorry i shouldn't have held you so close she looked up impatiently oh amory of course you couldn't help it and it didn't hurt much but what are we going to do about it do about it he asked 
Oh, that spot, it'll disappear in a second. It isn't, she said, after a moment of concentrated gazing. It's still there, and it looks like old Nick. Oh, Amory, what'll we do? It's just the height of your shoulder. Massage it, he suggested, repressing the faintest inclination to laugh. She rubbed it delicately with the tips of her fingers, and then a tear gathered in the corner of her eye, and slid down her cheek. "'Oh, Amory,' she said despairingly, lifting up a most pathetic face, "'I'll just make my whole neck flame if I rub it. What'll I do?' A quotation sailed into his head, and he couldn't resist repeating it aloud. "'All the perfumes of Arabia will not whiten this little hand.' She looked up, and the sparkle of the tear in her eye was like ice. "'You're not very sympathetic.' Amory mistook her meaning. "'Isabel, darling, I think it'll—' "'Don't touch me!' she cried. "'Haven't I enough on my mind, and you stand there and laugh?' Then he slipped again. "'Well, it is funny, Isabel, and we were talking the other day about a sense of humour being—' She was looking at him with something that was not a smile— rather the faint, mirthless echo of a smile in the corners of her mouth. "'Oh, shut up!' she cried suddenly, and fled down the hallway toward her room. Amory stood there, covered with remorseful confusion. "'Damn!' When Isabel reappeared she had thrown a light wrap about her shoulders, and they descended the stairs in a silence that endured through dinner. "'Isabel!' he began rather testily, as they arranged themselves in the car, bound for a dance at the Greenwich Country Club. "'You're angry, and I'll be too in a minute. Let's kiss and make up.' Isabel considered glumly. "'I hate to be laughed at,' she said finally. "'I won't laugh any more. I'm not laughing now, am I?' "'You did.' "'Oh, don't be so darn feminine!' Her lips curled slightly. "'I'll be anything I want.' Amory kept his temper with difficulty. He became aware that he had not an ounce of real affection for Isabel, but her coldness piqued him. He wanted to kiss her, kiss her a lot, because then he knew he could leave in the morning and not care. On the contrary, if he didn't kiss her, it would worry him. It would interfere vaguely with his idea of himself as a conqueror. It wasn't dignified to come off second best, pleading with a doughty warrior like Isabel. Perhaps she suspected this. At any rate, Amory watched the night that should have been the consummation of romance glide by with great moths overhead and the heavy fragrance of roadside gardens, but without those broken words, those little sighs. Afterward they suffered on ginger ale and devil's food in the pantry and Amory announced a decision. "'I'm leaving early in the morning.' "'Why?' "'Why not?' he countered. "'There's no need.' "'However, I'm going.' "'Well, if you insist on being ridiculous—' "'Oh, don't put it that way,' he objected. "'Just because I won't let you kiss me. Do you think—' "'Now, Isabel,' he interrupted, "'you know it's not that.' Even suppose it is. We've reached the stage where we either ought to kiss or... or nothing. It isn't as if you were refusing on moral grounds." She hesitated. "'I really don't know what to think about you,' 
she began in a feeble perverse attempt at conciliation you are so funny how well i thought you had a lot of self-confidence and all that remember you told me the other day that you could do anything you wanted or get anything you wanted amory flushed he had told her a lot of things yes well you didn't seem to feel so self-confident tonight maybe you're just plain conceited no i'm not he hesitated at princeton oh you in princeton you'd think that was the world the way you talk perhaps you can write better than anybody else on your old princetonian maybe the freshmen do think you're important you don't understand yes i do she interrupted i do because you're always talking about yourself and i used to like it now i don't have i tonight that's just the point insisted isabel you got all upset tonight you just sat and watched my eyes besides i have to think all the time i'm talking to you you're so critical i make you think do i amory repeated with a touch of vanity you're a nervous strain this emphatically and when you analyze every little emotion and instinct i just don't have em i know amory admitted her point and shook his head helplessly let's go she stood up he rose abstractedly and they walked to the foot of the stairs what train can i get there's one about nine eleven if you really must go yes i've got to go really good night good night they were at the head of the stairs and as amory turned into his room he thought he caught just the faintest cloud of discontent in her face he lay awake in the darkness and wondered how much he cared how much of his sudden unhappiness was hurt vanity whether he was after all temperamentally unfitted for romance when he awoke it was with a glad flood of consciousness the early wind stirred the chintz curtains at the windows and he was idly puzzled not to be in his room at princeton with his school football picture over the bureau and the triangle club on the wall opposite then the grandfather's clock in the hall outside struck eight and the memory of the night before came to him he was out of bed dressing like the wind he must get out of the house before he saw isabel what had seemed a melancholy happening now seemed a tiresome anticlimax he was dressed at half-past so he sat down by the window felt that the sinews of his heart were twisted somewhat more than he had thought what an ironic mockery the morning seemed bright and sunny and full of the smell of the garden hearing mrs borgia's voice in the sun-parlor below he wondered where was isabel there was a knock at the door the car will be around at ten minutes of nine sir he returned to his contemplation of the outdoors and began repeating over and over mechanically a verse from browning which he had once quoted to isabel in a letter each life unfulfilled you see it hangs still patchy and scrappy we have not sighed deep laughed free starved feasted despaired been happy but his life would not be unfulfilled he took a sombre satisfaction in thinking that perhaps all along she had been nothing except what he had read into her that this was her high point that no one else would ever make her think 
yet that was what she had objected to in him, and Amory was suddenly tired of thinking, thinking. "'Damn her!' he said bitterly. "'She's spoiled my year.' The Superman Grows Careless on a dusty day in September, Amory arrived in Princeton and joined the sweltering crowd of conditioned men who thronged the streets. It seemed a stupid way to commence his upper-class years, to spend four hours a morning in the stuffy room of a tutoring school, imbibing the infinite boredom of conic sections. Mr. Rooney, pander to the dull, conducted the class and smoked innumerable palmals as he drew diagrams and worked equations, from six in the morning until midnight. Now, Languedoc, if I use that formula, what would my A-point be?" Languedoc lazily shifts his six-foot-three of football material and tries to concentrate. "'Oh, um, I'm damned if I know, Mr. Rooney.' "'Oh, why, of course. Of course you can't use that formula. That's what I wanted you to say.' "'Why, sure, of course.' "'Do you see why?' You bet. Uh, I suppose so. If you don't see, tell me. I'm here to show you. Well, Mr. Rooney, if you don't mind, I wish you'd go over that again. Gladly. Now here's A. The room was a study in stupidity. Two huge stands for paper, Mr. Rooney in his shirt-sleeves in front of them, and slouched around on chairs a dozen men. Fred Sloan, the pitcher, who absolutely had to get eligible. Slim Languedoc, who would beat Yale this fall if only he could master a poor fifty per cent. McDowell, gay young sophomore, who thought it was quite a sporting thing to be tutoring here with all these prominent athletes. "'Those poor birds who haven't a cent to tutor, and have to study during the term are the ones I pity.' he announced to Amory one day, with a flaccid camaraderie in the droop of the cigarette from his pale lips. "'I should think it would be such a bore. There's so much else to do in New York during the term. I suppose they don't know what they miss, anyhow.' There was such an air of you and I about Mr. McDowell that Amory very nearly pushed him out of the open window when he said this. Next February his mother would wonder why he didn't make a club and increase his allowance. Simple little nut! Through the smoke and the air of solemn, dense earnestness that filled the room would come the inevitable, helpless cry. "'I don't get it! Repeat that, Mr. Rooney!' Most of them were so stupid or careless that they wouldn't admit when they didn't understand, and Amory was of the latter. He found it impossible to study conic sections. Something in their calm and tantalizing respectability, breathing defiantly through Mr. Rooney's fetid parlors, distorted their equations into insoluble anagrams. He made a last night's effort with the proverbial wet towel, and then blissfully took the exam, wondering unhappily why all the color and ambition of the spring before had faded out. Somehow, with the defection of Isabel, the idea of undergraduate success had loosed its grasp on his imagination, and he contemplated a possible failure to pass off his condition with equanimity, even though it would arbitrarily mean his removal from the Princetonian board and the slaughter of his chances for the senior council. There was always his luck. He yawned, scribbled his honor pledge on the cover, and sauntered from the room. 
"'If you don't pass it,' said the newly arrived Alec, as they sat on the window-seat of Amory's room, and mused upon a scheme of wall decoration, "'you're the world's worst goofer. Your stock will go down like an elevator at the club and on the campus.' "'Oh, hell, I know it. Why rub it in?' "'Cause you deserve it. Anybody that'd risk what you were in line for ought to be ineligible for Princetonian chairman.' "'Oh, drop the subject,' Amory protested. "'Watch and wait and shut up. I don't want everyone at the club asking me about it, as if I were a prize potato being fattened for a vegetable show.' One evening a week later, Amory stopped below his own window on the way to Renwick's, and, seeing a light, called up, "'Oh, Tom! Any mail?' Alec's head appeared against the yellow square of light. "'Yes, your result's here.' His heart clamoured violently. "'What is it, blue or pink?' "'Don't know. Better come up.' He walked into the room and straight over to the table, and then suddenly noticed that there were other people in the room. Low Carey, he was most polite. Ah, men of Princeton! They seemed to be mostly friends, so he picked up the envelope marked Registrar's Office, and weighed it nervously. We have here quite a slip of paper. Open it, Amory. Just to be dramatic, I'll let you know that if it's blue, my name is withdrawn from the editorial board of the Prince, and my short career is over. He paused, and then saw for the first time Ferenby's eyes, wearing a hungry look and watching him eagerly. Amory returned the gaze pointedly. "'Watch my face, gentlemen, for the primitive emotions.' He tore it open, and held the slip up to the light. "'Well, pink or blue? Say what it is. We're all ears, Amory. Smile, or swear, or something.' There was a pause. A small crowd of seconds swept by. Then he looked again, and another crowd went on into time. Blue as the sky, gentlemen. Aftermath What Amory did that year from early September to late in the spring was so purposeless and inconsecutive that it seemed scarcely worth recording. He was, of course, immediately sorry for what he had lost. His philosophy of success had tumbled down upon him, and he looked for the reasons. "'Your own laziness,' said Alec later. "'No, something deeper than that. I have begun to feel that I was meant to lose this chance.' "'They're rather off you at the club, you know. Every man that doesn't come through makes our crowd just so much weaker.' "'I hate that point of view.' course, with a little effort, you could still stage a comeback. No, I'm through, as far as ever being a power in college is concerned. But, Amory, honestly, what makes me the angriest isn't the fact that you won't be chairman of the Prince and on the senior council, but just that you didn't get down and pass that exam. Not me, said Amory slowly. I'm mad at the concrete thing. My own idleness was quite in accord with my system, but the luck broke. Your system broke, you mean? Maybe. Well, what are you going to do? Get a better one quick, or just bum around for two more years as a has-been? I don't know yet. Oh, Amory, buck up! 
maybe. Emery's point of view, though dangerous, was not far from the true one. If his reactions to his environment could be tabulated, the chart would have appeared like this, beginning with his earliest years. 1. The Fundamental Amory. 2. Amory plus Beatrice. 3. Amory plus Beatrice plus Minneapolis. Then St. Regis's had pulled him to pieces and started him over again. 4. Amory plus St. Regis's. 5. Amory plus St. Regis's plus Princeton. That had been his nearest approach to success through conformity. The fundamental Amory, idle, imaginative, rebellious, had been nearly snowed under. He had conformed, he had succeeded, but as his imagination was neither satisfied nor grasped by his own success, he had listlessly, half-accidentally, chucked the whole thing, and become again. 6. The Fundamental Amory Financial His father died quietly and inconspicuously at Thanksgiving. The incongruity of death with either the beauties of Lake Geneva or with his mother's dignified, reticent attitude diverted him, and he looked at the funeral with an amused tolerance. He decided that burial was, after all, preferable to cremation, and he smiled at his old boyhood choice, slow oxidation in the top of a tree. The day after the ceremony he was amusing himself in the great library by sinking back on a couch in graceful mortuary attitudes, trying to determine whether he would, when his day came, be found with his arms crossed piously over his chest. Monsignor Darcy had once advocated this posture as being the most distinguished or with his hands clasped behind his head, a more pagan and Byronic attitude. What interested him much more than the final departure of his father from things mundane was a tricornered conversation between Beatrice, Mr. Barton, of Barton and Crogman, their lawyers, and himself, that took place several days after the funeral. For the first time he came into actual cognizance of the family finances and realized what a tidy fortune had once been under his father's management. He took a ledger labeled 1906, and ran through it rather carefully. The total expenditure that year had come to something over one hundred and ten thousand dollars. Forty thousand of this had been Beatrice's own income, and there had been no attempt to account for it. It was all under the heading, Drafts, Checks, and Letters of Credit Forwarded to Beatrice Blaine. The dispersal of the rest was rather minutely itemized. The taxes and improvements on the Lake Geneva estate had come to almost $9,000. The general upkeep, including Beatrice's electric and a French car, bought that year, was over $35,000. The rest was fully taken care of, and there were invariably items which failed to balance on the right side of the ledger. In the volume for 1912 Amory was shocked to discover the decrease in the number of bond holdings and the great drop in the income. In the case of Beatrice's money this was not so pronounced, but it was obvious that his father had devoted the previous year to several unfortunate gambles in oil. Very little of the oil had been burned, but Stephen Blaine had been rather badly singed. The next year, and the next, and the next, showed similar decreases and Beatrice had for the first time begun using her own money for keeping up the house. 
yet her doctor's bill for 1913 had been over $9,000. About the exact state of things Mr. Barton was quite vague and confused. There had been recent investments, the outcome of which was, for the present, problematical, and he had an idea there were further speculations and exchanges concerning which he had not been consulted. It was not for several months that Beatrice wrote Amory the full situation. The entire residue of the Blaine and O'Hara fortunes consisted of the place at Lake Geneva and approximately a half million dollars, invested now in fairly conservative six-percent holdings. In fact, Beatrice wrote that she was putting the money into railroad and streetcar bonds as fast as she could conveniently transfer it. "'I am quite sure,' she wrote to Amory, "'that if there is one thing we can be positive of, it is that people will not stay in one place. This Ford person has certainly made the most of that idea. So I am instructing Mr. Barton to specialize on such things as Northern Pacific and these rapid transit companies, as they call the street-cars. I shall never forgive myself for not buying Bethlehem Steel. I have heard the most fascinating stories. You must go into finance, Amory. I'm sure you would revel in it. You start as a messenger, or a teller, I believe, and from that you go up almost indefinitely. I'm sure if I were a man I'd love the handling of money. It has become quite a senile passion with me. Before I get any farther I want to discuss something. A Mrs. Bispam, an over-cordial little lady whom I met at a tea the other day, told me that her son, he is at Yale, wrote her that all the boys there wore their summer underwear all during the winter, and also went about with their heads wet and in low shoes on the coldest days. Now, Amory, I don't know whether that is a fad at Princeton, too, but I don't want you to be so foolish. It not only inclines a young man to pneumonia and infantile paralysis, but to all forms of lung trouble to which you are particularly inclined. You cannot experiment with your health. I have found that out. I will not make myself ridiculous, as some mothers no doubt do, by insisting that you wear overshoes, though I remember one Christmas you wore them around constantly, without a single buckle latched, making such a curious swishing sound, and you refused to buckle them because it was not the thing to do. The very next Christmas you would not wear even rubbers, though I begged you. You are nearly twenty years old now, dear, and I can't be with you constantly to find whether you are doing the sensible thing. This has been a very practical letter. I warned you in my last that the lack of money to do the things one wants to makes one quite prosy and domestic, but there is still plenty for everything if we are not too extravagant. Take care of yourself, my dear boy, and do try to write at least once a week because I imagine all sorts of horrible things if I don't hear from you. Affectionately, Mother. First Appearance of the Term Personage Monsignor Darcy invited Amory up to the Stuart Palace on the Hudson for a week at Christmas, and they had enormous conversations around the open fire. Monsignor was growing a trifle stouter, and his personality had expanded even with that, and Amory felt both rest and security in sinking into a squat, cushioned chair, and joining him in the middle-aged sanity of a cigar. "'I've felt like leaving college, Monseigneur.' "'Why?' 
all my career's gone up in smoke. You think it's petty and all that, but not at all petty. I think it's most important. I want to hear the whole thing. Everything you've been doing since I saw you last." Amory talked. He went thoroughly into the destruction of his egotistic highways, and in a half-hour the listless quality had left his voice. "'What would you do if you left college?' asked Monseigneur. "'Don't know. I'd like to travel, but of course this tiresome war prevents that. Anyways, Mother would hate not having me graduate. I'm just at sea. Carrie Holliday wants me to go over with him and join the Lafayette Esquadrille.' You know you wouldn't like to go. Sometimes I would. Tonight I'd go in a second. Well, you'd have to be very much more tired of life than I think you are. I know you. I'm afraid you do, agreed Amory reluctantly. It just seemed an easy way out of everything. When I think of another useless, draggy year. Yes, I know. But to tell you the truth, I'm not worried about you. You seem to me to be progressing perfectly naturally." "'No,' Amory objected. "'I've lost half my personality in a year.' "'Not a bit of it,' scoffed Monseigneur. "'You've lost a great amount of vanity, and that's all.' "'Lordy! I feel anyway as if I'd gone through another fifth form at St. Regis's.' "'No,' Monseigneur shook his head. That was a misfortune. This has been a good thing. Whatever worthwhile comes to you won't be through the channels you were searching last year. What could be more unprofitable than my present lack of pep? Perhaps in itself, but you're developing. This has given you time to think, and you're casting off a lot of your old luggage about success and the Superman and all. People like us can't adopt whole theories, as you did. If we can do the next thing, and have an hour a day to think in, we can accomplish marvels, but as far as any high-headed scheme of blind dominance is concerned, we'd just make asses of ourselves. But, Monseigneur, I can't do the next thing. Amory, between you and me, I have only just learned to do it myself. I can do the one hundred things beyond the next thing, but I stub my toe on that just as you stubbed your toe on mathematics this fall. Why do we have to do the next thing? It never seems the sort of thing I should do. We have to do it because we're not personalities, but personages. That's a good line. What do you mean? A personality is what you thought you were, what this Carrie and Sloan you tell me of evidently are. Personality is a physical matter almost entirely. It lowers the people it acts on. I've seen it vanish in a long sickness. But while a personality is active, it overrides the next thing. Now a personage, on the other hand, gathers. He is never thought of apart from what he's done. He's a bar on which a thousand things have been hung, glittering things sometimes, as ours are, but he uses these things with a cold mentality back of them and several of my most glittering possessions had fallen off when I needed them." Amory continued the simile eagerly. "'Yes, that's it. When you feel that your garnered prestige and talents and all that are hung out, you need never bother about anybody. You can cope with them without difficulty.' 
But on the other hand, if I haven't my possessions, I'm helpless. Absolutely. That's certainly an idea. Now you've a clean start. A start Carrie or Sloan can constitutionally never have. You brushed three or four ornaments down, and in a fit of pique, knocked off the rest of them. The thing now is to collect some new ones, and the farther you look ahead in the collecting, the better. But remember, do the next thing. How clear you can make things. So they talked, often about themselves, sometimes of philosophy and religion, and life as respectively a game or a mystery. The priest seemed to guess Amory's thoughts before they were clear in his own head, so closely related were their minds in form and groove. "'Why do I make lists?' Amory asked him one night. "'Lists of all sorts of things.' "'Because you're a medievalist,' Monsignor answered. "'We both are. It's the passion for classifying and finding a type. "'It's a desire to get something definite.' It's the nucleus of scholastic philosophy. I was beginning to think I was growing eccentric till I came up here. It was a pose, I guess. Don't worry about that, for you not posing may be the biggest pose of all. Pose. Yes. But do the next thing. After Amory returned to college he received several letters from Monsignor which gave him more egotistic food for consumption. I am afraid that I gave you too much assurance of your inevitable safety, and you must remember that I did that through faith in your springs of effort, not in the silly conviction that you will arrive without struggle. Some nuances of character you will have to take for granted in yourself, though you must be careful in confessing them to others. You are unsentimental, almost incapable of affection, astute without being cunning, and vain without being proud. Don't let yourself feel worthless. Often through life you will really be at your worst when you seem to think best of yourself. And don't worry about losing your personality, as you persist in calling it. At fifteen you had the radiance of early morning. At twenty you will begin to have the melancholy brilliance of the moon. And when you are my age you will give out, as I do, the genial golden warmth of four p.m. If you write me letters please let them be natural ones. Your last, that dissertation on architecture, was perfectly awful, so highbrow that I picture you living in an intellectual and emotional vacuum, and beware of trying to classify people too definitely into types. You will find that all through their youth they will persist annoyingly in jumping from class to class, and by pasting a supercilious label on every one you meet, you are merely packing a jack-in-the-box that will spring up and leer at you when you begin to come into really antagonistic contact with the world. An idealization of some such a man as Leonardo da Vinci would be a more valuable beacon to you at present. You are bound to go up and down, just as I did in my youth, but do keep your clarity of mind, and if fools or sages dare to criticize, don't blame yourself too much. You say that convention is all that really keeps you straight in this woman proposition. But it's more than that, Amory. It's the fear that what you begin you can't stop. You would run amuck, and I know whereof I speak. 
It's that half-miraculous sixth sense by which you detect evil. It's the half-realized fear of God in your heart. Whatever your métier proves to be, religion, architecture, literature, I'm sure you would be much safer anchored to the church. But I won't risk my influence by arguing with you even though I am secretly sure that the black chasm of Romanism yawns beneath you. Do write me soon. With affectionate regards, Thayer Darcy. Even Amory's reading paled during this period. He delved further into the misty side streets of literature, Hoysmans, Walter Pater, Theophile Gaultier, and the racier sections of Rabelais, Boccaccio, Petronius, and Suetonius. One week, through general curiosity, he inspected the private libraries of his classmates, and found Sloane's as typical as any sets of Kipling, O. Henry, John Fox, Jr., and Richard Harding Davis, what every middle-aged woman ought to know, the spell of the Yukon, a gift copy of James Whitcomb Riley, an assortment of battered, annotated school-books, and finally, to his surprise, one of his own late discoveries, the collected poems of Rupert Brooke. Together with Tom Donvilliers, he sought among the lights of Princeton for someone who might found the great American poetic tradition. The undergraduate body itself was rather more interesting that year than had been the entire Philistine Princeton of two years before. Things had livened surprisingly, though at the sacrifice of much of the spontaneous charm of freshman year. In the old Princeton they would never have discovered Tanaduke Wiley. Tanaduke was a sophomore, with tremendous ears and a way of saying, the earth swirls down through the ominous moons of preconsidered generations, that made them vaguely wonder why it did not sound quite clear, but never questioned that it was the utterance of a super-soul. At least so Tom and Amory took him. They told him in all earnestness that he had a mind like Shelley's, and featured his ultra-free free verse and prose poetry in the Nassau Literary Magazine but Tanaduke's genius absorbed the many colours of the age, and he took to the bohemian life, to their great disappointment. He talked of Greenwich Village now instead of noon-swirled moons, and met winter muses, unacademic, and cloistered by 42nd Street and Broadway, instead of the Shelleyan dream-children with whom he had regaled their expectant appreciation. So they surrendered Tanaduke to the futurists deciding that he and his flaming ties would do better there. Tom gave him the final advice that he should stop writing for two years, and read the complete works of Alexander Pope four times. But on Amory's suggestion that Pope for Tanaduke was like foot-ease for stomach trouble, they withdrew in laughter, and called it a coin's toss whether this genius was too big or too petty for them. Amory rather scornfully avoided the popular professors who dispensed easy epigrams and thimblefuls of chartreuse to groups of admirers every night. He was disappointed, too, at the air of general uncertainty on every subject that seemed linked with the pedantic temperament. His opinions took shape in a miniature satire called In a Lecture Room, which he persuaded Tom to print in the Nassau Lit. Good morning, fool. Three times a week you hold us helpless while you speak, teasing our thirsty souls with the sleek yeas of your philosophy. 
Well, here we are, your hundred sheep. Tune up, play on, pour forth, we sleep. You are a student, so they say. You hammered out the other day a syllabus from what we know of some forgotten folio. You'd sniffled through an era's must, filling your nostrils up with dust, and then, arising from your knees, published in one gigantic sneeze. But here's a neighbour on my right, an eager ass, considered bright. Ask her of questions, how he'll stand with earnest air and fidgy hand, after this hour telling you he sat all night and burrowed through your book. Oh, you'll be coy, and he will simulate precocity. And pedants both you'll smile and smirk, and leer, and hasten back to work. "'Twas this day-week, sir, you returned, a theme of mine, from which I learned, through various comment on the side which you had scrawled, that I defied the highest rules of criticism, for cheap and careless witticism. Are you quite sure that this could be? And Shaw is no authority. But eager ass, with what he sent, plays havoc with your best percent. Still, still I meet you here and there. When Shakespeare's played, you hold a chair, and some defunct, moth-eaten star enchants the mental prig you are. A radical comes down and shocks the atheistic orthodox. You're representing common sense, mouth open, in the audience, and sometimes even chapel lures that conscious tolerance of yours, that broad and beaming view of truth, including Kant and General Booth, and so from shock to shock you live, a hollow pale affirmative. The hour's up, and roused from rest, one hundred children of the blest cheat you a word or two with feet that down the noisy aisleways beat, forget on narrow-minded earth the mighty yawn that gave you birth. In April, Carrie Holliday left college and sailed for France to enroll in the Lafayette Esquadrille. Amory's envy and admiration of this step was drowned in an experience of his own to which he never succeeded in giving an appropriate value, but which, nevertheless, haunted him for three years afterwards. End of part.